Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Hello and welcome to the latest Commodity Watch Radio. Now, in more ways than one, it is the hot metal. And without wishing to boast, this, ladies and gentlemen, is the hottest radio show on the subject. The mother of all uranium programs. I say this without having researched the matter at all, but I defy anyone to find a podcast or radio show that examines uranium to the same extent that we do now. Three hours of interviews with the experts on uranium. This program is positively nuclear. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. Jim Dines, the original uranium bug, talks for an hour on the subject. We talk to four uranium miners, Laramide, UPC, Vein Minerals and Summit Resources. And we talk to the managers of two UK-based uranium funds, Geiger Counter and Yellowcake. And expert trader Dr. Bub gives us his opinion. He also tells us why he feels the US indices might be topping soon. Now for the disclaimer. Guests on this show express strong opinions, but nothing you hear constitutes advice to buy or sell anything. Load up your iPods. Here we go. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com the Dines Letter was one of the top, if not the top, performing newsletter last year, the advice of which, if followed to the letter, would have netted you as much as 300% return on your investment last year. And that is largely because of Jim Dines' continued belief in a commodity that was recently vilified, unpopular and misunderstood. People certainly weren't putting their money into it. But it's become the hot commodity. I'm talking, of course, about uranium. So, Jim Dines, thank Thank you very much for coming on to Commodity Watch Radio. Why don't we start by saying, why uranium? Uranium is, let me back up. Uh, the way to make a fortune in the stock market is to identify a new major trend before everybody else. And it's the kind of thing that we did at the Internet in the mid-1990s before most people didn't even know what the Internet was. And we made a killing, and the time to, we sold out in 2000, uh, because at that point everybody wanted into the internet. And then we went into uranium, which was at that time the single most hated investment in the world. And it took a lot of nerve to even mention it, but I even went further and said that it would wind up as uh, being recommended even by the environmentalists. Because we are now at a multi-century shift from burning things to mineral energy. And the reason for that is, number one, global warming. And burning anything is not going to work, whether it's ethanol or, or anything else. And, um, and second of all, uh, our oil reserves are running low. You can read Matt Simmons' book, um, 
and get a clear idea of how dangerously low some of these oil fields are that were found in the 1940s. They're 60 years old and been pumping every day, day and night since. And at some point, uh, these are going to run dry, and that's open to debate. But uh, in fact, uh, the amount of oil uh, being produced is, uh, isn't, is, is going to run out this century without a doubt. And the argument is when. And third, there could be a terrorist cutoff of energy, some kind of geopolitical upheaval, war in the Middle East. And we need to go into uranium, which is the only solution that they're going to have to come to. So what we did was, in 2000, we got into a range of uranium-mining shares, and um, they have done spectacularly well. Uh, we have the only uranium average in the world. It's called diurania, the Dines uranium average. And um, the reason most people aren't aware of the uranium bull market is are twofold. Uh, one is, of course, the haunting of uh, Chernobyl and, uh, and uh, Three Mile Island. Uh, and second, uh, there's no average. People are simply not aware of it, and the press is, has been totally asleep on the subject. But uh, the Dines uranium average is up 1,121% um, the last five years. There's no other average that comes near it. And that, and that includes the internets, the Dow, the uh, FTSE, all the rest of them. None of them come anywhere near that performance. Diurania was up 126% last year alone. And the individual uranium mining shares have done uh, even even better. There's one stock called uh, Laramide that has gone up uh, from $0.10 cents to, to $11. And um, that's uh, had a phenomenal run. It's, uh, it's a gain of, uh, of uh, I don't know, 20,000%, whatever it is. So... There are fortunes being made in uranium mining shares, and very few people are aware of it yet, but the insiders are making absolute killings, and I think we're just in the early stages. I spoke to my broker. Um, this is just the guy who answers the phones at a kind of one of the Internet brokers. It's not a kind of bespoke broker. And he said at the moment he's getting more inquiries about uranium stocks than anything else. Do you think that's a possible sign that maybe the market's a little overheated? No, it's, uh, it's a sign of the beginning. I'd say in the Internet boom, which we tracked very closely uh, because we had all of our money in it, um, I'd say we're about 1997 or 1998. We're nowhere near the top. And um, it's, it's, uh, uranium is an orphan. I mean, they're looking at it as one of the possibilities for, to replace oil. They don't really understand that wind power is not going to work because when the wind stops, the lights go out. And uh, besides, they're not going to put windmills on, on jet aircraft. <laughs> and uh, solar is too small, and if you want to cover the planet with mirrors, uh, that's, that's okay, but what are you going to do for electricity at night? And uh, they're talking about ethanol. Well, fine. Uh, the price of corn is already uh, at uh, sky-high levels, and... Uh, the peasants are, are, are marching in Mexico City because their tortilla prices are too high. So if you burn food for fuel, uh, I mean, none of this stuff's going to work, and, and plus it's going to bring global warming. And this is the biggest event of the century, the, the switch over for the first time in human history from burning things to a mineral energy, and um, the, this boom is going to be like nothing. 
I remember in 95, I said the Internet was the biggest boom I'd ever seen. And I'm telling you that uranium will be larger than an or by an order of magnitude. I, I own some uranium stocks, but I'd, I'd like to own a lot more. But I just, I just look at the chart and I think it's, it's got to correct. Why? Because that's what charts do. <laughs> well, uh, this is different. Uh, the price of uranium has gone from $8 to $72 without a single decline. That's what I mean. I mean, surely it's, it's got to at least pull back or slow down. Or... No. No, it doesn't. Uh, this is different. This is, this is the biggest... Look, this is not just a little uh, temporary blip. This is a, a profound transformation of society. Automobiles are going to have to go to hydrogen. And the only way to get, and you can't, you won't be able to burn fossil fuels to get that hydrogen. You're going to have to use nuclear. And uh, so the demand for nuclear is going to be phenomenal, and it's already in deep shortage. Furthermore, not only is it in shortage for the buyers of uh, the buyers who run nuclear facilities, but the uh, sharks on Wall Street, the hedge fund, hedge funds are now buying it as an investment, competing with the ordinary users. So this is leading to a panic, uh, a pre-panic level of uranium buying. Look, I'm the original uranium bug. I'm telling you, this is the biggest thing I've ever seen, and I'm skeptical that there'll be any corrections at all for a while. I think you're going to see um, my targets were 70 to $100 a pound at $8. I admit it was unlikely looking, but, it, but it's come true. But we're only at 75 And if you, if you confront uh, a manager of a nuclear facility with the option of uh, paying 100 or $150 for uranium or the lights going out, I promise you, they'll pay $150. It's a very small part of the cost of a nuclear facility. And they'll just pass it on to the consumers anyway. So there's nothing to stop. Am, am I right in saying even with the existing nuclear facilities that there are, there is already a shortage? That's before we factor in the nuclear power stations that are being built? Correct. Now, uh, I went to uh, Beijing in 1979 and came back the original China bug. I said that they were going to dominate the 21st century, followed closely by India. And those predictions are starting to come true. And now every one of those people uh, want cars. You know, half the people on the planet have yet to drive a car. And this, it's the same old oil pool. There were just so many dinosaurs and giant ferns that got melted down. So this oil, the age of petroleum, is ending. You can argue whether it will be in 10 years or 20, but we are coming to the end of it. And personally, off the record, uh, I, I think that governments will not allow motorists to use the last drop. That they're, as soon as they awaken, uh, they're going to seize the oil for military purposes, and uh, either we go back to horse-drawn carriages or we go into nuclear. Those are your choices. And In fact, uh, Russia, Russia has already begun to use oil as a strategic asset, and I think that's the, the beginning of the fulfillment of that prediction, I think governments worldwide, George Bush has announced doubling of the strategic reserve. I think that the scramble for the last drop of oil is on. <laughs> Let me ask you about the use of, because I think something like 80% of the world's oil gets used in transportation. How will uranium be used in the transportation industries? Gee, that's not a problem. All you do is put water, uh, 
uh, you know, use electrolytic uh, devices to separate water into hydrogen and oxygen, and you go into fuel cells. I mean, there's all kinds of ways. And the net result will be water, which solves your global warming problem. <laughs> Using these, this hydrogen technology, will we be able to get the same performance from our cars and our jet planes and our trains? Absolutely. Piece of cake. And remember, it's not a ch- You know, people seem to think that it's a choice between uranium and oil. Let me tell you something. It's a choice between uranium and shivering in the dark. My goodness. Now... You said that there's a supply shortage at the moment. These are a couple of posts from a, from a discussion about uranium that I, that I was reading. One poster said, you have to remember that there are large secondary supplies of uranium held by the Russians and the Americans, as well as significant stockpiles of so-called waste from MOX, which can be obtained. What's your take on that? Well, first of all, uh, that's nonsense. Uh, the, uh, the Americans have about 100 million pounds, and even if they released it, the speculators on Wall Street would gobble it up faster than you could blink your eye. The, the, uh, the, sh- the amounts are too small. Uh, what's in stockpiles are not enough, anywhere near enough. Try to understand, India and China are coming into the modern era. They want cars, and they want to run those cars. You're going to have, that's why you're getting a boom in platinum and palladium for uh, uh, automotive electro, electrolytic, or catalytic, catalytic devices. Uh, there's a huge demand coming for, for, for cars and uranium. And what, what happened was at the last boom in the 1980s, uh, they melted down the Russian um, and American arsenals, and all this uranium came flooding into the market and caused a complete depression in the industry. Of course, Chernobyl didn't help either. And because of that, the industry virtually went bankrupt. There were very few companies that survived. Uh, and um, and they've done very little uh, exploration and development. It takes ten years to build a uranium mine. You don't just go dig a hole and get uranium. You've got, you know uh, workers can only stay down there limited amounts of time before they have to get out of there because of the radiation. And ten years to build a mine, and we've had a twenty-year bear market in uranium, has left the industry devastated. And now it's scrambling to uh, find uranium and and, uh, catch up in a hurry, but it's going to be years before they get any uranium. Meanwhile, China and India uh, have keep keep increasing the number of nuclear plants they intend to build. China, I remember about five years ago, said they're looking to build about three or four nuclear plants. Then it was uh, five or ten. Now they're looking for 20 plants by 2020. My prediction five years ago that China was going to build thousands of nuclear power plants. Right now, China is building one coal-fired power plant a day. They'll be, they'll be building approximately 360 or so this year. And it's the wrong direction. The, ocean, the glaciers are melting. Uh, e- either, either they stop building these coal-fired plants or we all start going into the snorkel business because that's where we're going to be uh, playing glove-glove. <laughs> The world is in a critical position in global warming, and it might already be too late. And they're talking about slowly diminishing it by 2020. Wrong. This is not going to work. They don't understand that this is an immediate crisis, that it's like trying to turn an ocean liner around. The announcement they made recently on on global warming by the world scientists have made it crystal clear that we have already waited very, very late 
We've ignored the problem, and something needs to be done urgently. And the only solution is nuclear power. Like it or not, complain or not, dangerous or not, that's the way it is. Read them and weep. Here in London, the, uh, the, the Thames flood barrier was, uh, was called into action last year, more than it's been called into action in any previous year, I understand. Well, pretty soon, uh, London might wind up like New Orleans. <laughs> uh, the oceans are rising. And the punishment for ignoring this is, is, uh, is here. And all I can do is say, I hope I'm wrong. I've never hoped more for that before in my life because I live here too. And I've done everything I could to talk about global warming and the Dines letter for the last 20, 30 years. I've done everything I could to get people into uranium mining shares because that is where they're going to wind up, whether they know it yet or not. That's how you make a killing on Wall Street. You're getting it at the beginning in, uh, bef- while it's figuratively invisible to the, to the, to the mass. Uh, my, my third book, Mass Psychology, goes into all this. All new bull markets are figuratively invisible. People didn't see uh, internets at the beginning in 95. They saw it at the top in 2000. That is the way all bull markets work. And we're now in a classic bull market, and this one is going to be the mother of all bull markets. I have never in my career... Uh, and it goes back a ways. I have never seen anything like this. We're seeing, we're seeing in the last few months uranium companies springing up all over the place and uh, shell companies suddenly putting uranium into their name. Uh, how, many of the, uh, how many uranium companies are there in the world, roughly, and, and, and how many of them do you think, what percentage of them are actually going to find and produce some uranium? I think that there are quite a few uh, companies that will find it. Uranium is actually very abundant. The question is finding it in commercial quantities that, that at uh, current prices. And that's why the price is moving up so much. There will be no uranium shortage, oh, by about 2015. It takes 10 years to build a mine. That's after you find the stuff. So, yes, they're springing up all over the stage, but uh, all over the world. But look, you've got, you've got different types of, there are three different types of uranium companies. One is an actual producer. Uh, such as uh, uh, Cameco, which we got into at five and sold out, sold it at uh, 500% profit, 540% profit. Uh, that's an actual producer. Uh, the the, uh, the majority of them are exploration companies, and the um, these guys are out there hunting for it. And in between are the development companies. They begin to develop them and get them ready for. Uh, for sale to a major or for actual production. That's going to take 10 years. You don't just go uranium. This isn't like digging a hole and getting stuff done. And that is why, because of the depression from 80 to 2000, I was so bullish on uranium because I realized that there would be an incredible surge of demand falling on an industry devastated in a, fl- a, f- in a flattening depression that would be the opportunity of a lifetime. And let me tell you something. This is the biggest opportunity still ahead. I don't think we're anywhere near the top. I think that uranium is going, when the world wakes up to the fact that when they get tired of looking for ethanol and all the rest of this stuff and wind power and solar, they're going to realize that uranium is going to be the, uh, we're in a new nuclear age, that the age of petroleum is in its twilight and that we are, the whole world is going to be transformed into a new set of power. There will be problems with it. It's dangerous, no question about it. Again, the choice is either that or shivering in the dark. 
and it's not a question of burning wood. Uh, uh, the uh, the global warming situation precludes burning things. That is over. In fact, what we need to do is stop burning things immediately and then hope that uh, the, the flooding won't get too bad in the next 20 or 30 years uh, so that the uh, temperatures of the planet can start dropping. But that has to be done yesterday. This is not a question of uh, Kyoto slowing it down moderately in the next 10, 20 years. That's over. We are the, the the clock is is uh, is nearly at midnight, and uh, it might reach a a tipping point of irreversibility where it wouldn't matter what we did that the melting is going to happen, and that Florida is going to be underwater. Of course, some people would be glad about that, but uh, but Bangladesh would be gone. The island kingdoms around the world would be underwater. You know, we this is a really serious problem. This is not just something that politicians can play with. This is one of the this is a bigger danger than so called terrorism. Let's let's address some of those questions. So there are some people that um that believe that this global warming that we're seeing is just a cycle. Oh come on. I mean uh had all these scientists I mean they've been studying this for twenty years. I mean this they've done computer programs of it. Uh, they've made predictions based on uh, on on uh, what would happen if global uh, global warming were in fact caused by human activity, and the predictions are coming exactly true. So as far I mean, uh, as scientists uh, look either you follow the science or you don't. The ninety percent there's a ninety percent probability of it happening. What is the risk of being wrong? What you know they think? Oh, it's just a regular cycle. Well, okay. Well, what if it isn't? Well, I mean, look at your risk reward ratio. The risk is that the planet is going to be submerged. I mean, how could you take a risk like that? So you're you're an ordinary Joe living in in let's say the UK because most of our listenership is British, and uh, you've got your family. What what steps would you be taking? What steps you should be taking is for high ground. Get rid of your waterfront property. Uh, buy some uranium mining shares, and uh, and fight like hell to get these politicians to do something right. To, that we need to we need to go into a crash program, and uh, of of uh, as much as possible transitioning to uh, to nuclear. Uh, we could do it in about ten years. Would that be too late? I hope I hope not. But uh, I don't see any activity. I don't see the urgency uh, that I've been literally shouting about in the Dines letter for the last six years. I just don't see it. And until that happens, I mean, people are still talking about cyclical. Look at the question you asked. I mean, the scientists are, are unanimous. We are in huge danger of the glaciers melting on this planet. And it might be irreversible because when the ice melts, instead of reflecting sunlight away from, and heat away from the Earth, the Earth below it shows, and that absorbs heat which will accelerate the process. We might already be at the tipping point. You know, this is not a joke. This is really serious stuff, and it's the biggest challenge mankind has probably confronted forever. You say that uh, we could make the transformation in 10 years. No, I didn't say that. I said that we could start building, uh, we could start developing enough uranium in 10 years. We could make a start. It will take 30 to 50 years to go completely off or fossil fuels. We're very late. This thing should have been started. You know who was really smart? The French. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the 1970s with the first oil crisis, 
they went nuclear. They now get 79, almost 80% of their energy from nuclear. They were brilliant. And you know what? The rest of the world has been lazy and asleep, and they are going to be punished for it. Where uranium is in, in terms of world energy is in many ways where oil was at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. How do we pick the winners? How do we know which are going to be the next BPs and the next Shells and Exxons and so on? Cross my palm with silver and I will tell all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm the original uranium bug. The stocks I've picked have been winner after winner after winner. And the way to pick them is, first of all, to be clear that the main uranium to be found these days is in Australia, which will be the Saudi Arabia of uranium, and Canada, which will be, um, I don't know, Iran, I guess. And um, those are the places where the main uranium mining companies are. And fortunately, because I was also the original gold bug, I'm very familiar with the mining industry and also in those two countries. And because I have contacts and know so many people and can make estimates, um, it certainly helps the Dines letter pick, um, pick the probable winners. And so far, uh, we've had the best record in the business. The Dines interview continues in part two. Now, let's talk to some miners. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisbee. Laramide Resources is a Toronto-based resource company specializing in the acquisition and development of mining projects globally. They've acquired an impressive list of known uranium assets with drilled-out resources, and currently Laramide has approximately £60 million of U308 and some very exciting exploration projects located both within the USA and Australia with the potential to double these known resources. The company's current main focus is the advancement of its Westmoreland Copper Gold Uranium project in Queensland, Australia, which is expected to become Laramide's flagship asset. And taking time off from his holiday in Utah to talk to me now is their president, Mark Henderson. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. You've a big fan in Jim Dines. What's all the fuss about? Tell us about Laramide. I'd be happy to do that, Dominic, and thanks for having me on the show. Um, Laramide was one of the fortunate early entrants into the uh, uranium space back in uh, early 2004. Uh, we'd known about the potential for uranium for some time, having been involved in a uranium startup company in the 90s that was obviously started a little too soon, but the, the supply-demand fundamentals, which are now manifesting themselves in the price, uh, had been coming for quite some time in terms of uh, the requirement to get new uranium deposits into production, so we were a fortunate beneficiary of the trend that you uh, you now see in spades. Our biggest project, obviously, is this is this very exciting, very large uh, Westmoreland property in Queensland, Australia. Now, the Westmoreland project uh, is an ex Rio Tinto project. Like many of these projects in the uranium space, it's had a multitude of owners. It's been worked on for, in some cases, decades. This was this project was discovered originally 
by uh, Mount Isa Mines, which is a which is a very fine old legacy Australian mining company that, that was bought out by Oxstrata a few years back. They found the project in 1956, and then it went through a series of owners, including Queensland Mines, which I believe uh, was John Borshoff's company uh, before Paladin, and finally Rio Tinto had it in the early 90s and was developing it towards production and was just about on the verge of putting it in production in the 95-96 time frame when we had a small blip up in the uranium price to about $15, $16 a pound. Um, and then that didn't happen, and the project went uh, back to, to uh, fallow stage, essentially, and then they eventually dropped it, and we were fortunate to pick it up in the early 2004 from another from another project, from another uh, prospector type that we knew in Australia. Now, if I'm right in saying, there's um, Australia isn't the easiest place in the world to actually produce uranium. While there's uh, loads of it in the ground there, the uh, the government only allow three producers. Is that right? That's correct. There is there is a policy in Australia called the Three Mines Policy, or as it's commonly known, the Three Mines Policy. Now, the Three Mines Policy has gone through a number of shifts over the years. It was originally, most people don't know this, but it was originally a policy developed by the Labour government um, in the early days of uranium to sort of husband the national treasure, if you will, of uranium for future generations so that all of the uh, energy potential uh, of that uranium wasn't squandered uh, in a short space of time. And what happened was the, the that policy morphed uh, into a sort of an anti, anti-uranium policy because the environmentalists got a hold of the uh, Labour Party in Australia post the incident at Three Mile Island in Chernobyl, and obviously the, there was a huge shift in public perception against nuclear as a result of those um, two events, which are obviously well-known events. But the other thing that happened in, in um, the uranium world was that the cost of building these power plants in the late 70s and early 80s just kind of spiraled out of control. So there were a whole, a whole variety of factors that caused uranium and nuclear power generally to go out of favor. And it's obviously been out of favor for some 20 years, 25 years, and is now coming back into favor for all the reasons that it was was uh, highly prized the first time around, which is that it's a, a very efficient source of baseline baseload power for utilities. But uh, Laramide aren't one of those three mines, so uh, what are you going to do? Well, what's what's happened, Dominic, is as you've got these two major forces in the world, and and you know uranium is a commodity. Um, like many other commodities, but particularly so in uranium, it's really affected by what happens um, in the energy space globally. Um, it's it's a very long life cycle uh, industry, the utility industry, and making power with utilities is something that, that these utilities have plans that go out decades, and so you're influenced by those sorts of things globally. And what's happened is, of course, we've got a major energy crisis in the world that's well known uh, in all forms of energy, essentially, are in relatively short supply, oil, natural gas, uh, uranium. The only one uh, that's not, of course, is coal, and that brings in the other major uh, influential factor that's happening now in the world, which is the whole concern over climate change and global warming. And, of course, coal is, is quite reviled in that in that debate. And so what's happened is as these two forces have come together, people have sort of had a had another look at nuclear and said, well, it's it's sort of the devil we know, and we the the problems with waste storage are well known. But perhaps in the big scheme of things, in terms of the, the requirement to generate electricity for the world, which is only going to grow, we really need to have another good hard look at nuclear power. And that's really what's happening, and that's what's shifted public opinion in Australia to the point where the politicians have decided 
that they really have to get on the bandwagon and take advantage of their natural advantage because Australia, the, the great thing about Australia is that they have probably 35 to 40% of all the known reserves in the world, and they tend to be the reserves that are the easiest, lowest cost reserves of uranium. So the, what you're really seeing is a movement by a government to take advantage of their natural position that's now supported by public opinion. So I've heard it said that uh, Australia is uranium's answer to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, we sort of dubbed it the Saudi Arabia uranium, and they really should be. They should be the price setter, and they should be the, the – I mean, if there was an OPEC of uranium – you know, the Saudi Arabia would have the seat at the, or I mean, uh, Australia would have this, the seat at the head of the table, no question. No question. I mean, everybody knows about Olympic Dam, but there's a number of other projects in Australia that were discovered in earlier cycles that are essentially ready to go and will go a long way to taking some of the steam out of the price. I mean, the price has run up an awfully long way. And part of the, part of the reason that it's been able to do that is because Australia's kind of been out of the game. We think when Australia gets out of the game, you know, you're going to see this price probably at least consolidate for a while around these levels as opposed to uh, continuing to go up because it's basically gone up vertically for the past three or four years. I mean, I I know you spoke to uh, Mr. Dines the other day, and I think he, he mentioned it's the only commodity he's ever seen that's gone up for three or four years running without a downtick. It's been quite extraordinary. Uh, having said that, a lot of the um, uranium stocks have haven't. I mean, they've gone up dramatically, but they have had consolidations and pullbacks on the way up. So they haven't been quite as ballistic as the uh, underlying commodity. Well, the, 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 there's. A, I think there's something like 450 companies that claim to be uranium companies at the moment. And this is typical that you see in bull markets. I mean, in the tech market, nobody knew anything about the internet, and suddenly. Everybody had an internet business idea, and before too long, Wall Street took a lot of them public. I mean, you're seeing some elements of that now in the uranium space, but there was a legacy of projects that were available and were known in the world from previous work that went on in the 70s. Because we had these booms in uranium, and the, there was a huge boom in the 70s that died abruptly with the, with the price collapse. And as a result of that, there were projects that were ready to go, and those projects, by, I would say, by and large, have all surfaced and are probably in the hands of no more than 20 or 25 companies. You know, and obviously we think we're one of the one of the companies that has one of those projects. We think probably one of the best ones. But I, as the other ones, I mean, a lot of the, there's a lot of other companies in uranium exploration, and that's good. I mean, the price is doing what it should do. It's it's begetting a lot of exploration in the world, and that exploration will eventually be successful. You know, and you will solve the the shortfall. I mean, the, you know, the cure for high prices is high prices, and it will work in uranium. It's just taking a long time. I mean, how much U three hundred eight is there in the Earth's crust? Well, it's a very it's a very common um, element. What you have with uranium, I mean, there's probably uranium if you if you went in your backyard in London there and took a test. I know there's no doubt there's going to be some uranium in that in that soil as part of the, as part of what's in the in the ground. It's more abundant, I believe, than silver. Um, what happens with uranium, though, it doesn't aggregate into commercial deposits very well because it's very mobile in, in solution, um, and you need a particular set of conditions to create a uranium deposit. And that, in fact, some of the uranium deposits that are quite good uranium deposits, including Olympic Dam, the percentage of uranium is really quite small. I mean, the percentage of uh, of uranium that's in Olympic Dam versus the percentage of uranium that's in, say, Cigar Lake, which is the thing that's been in the headlines recently, at the other end of the spectrum, we're talking orders of hundreds 
I mean, there's, I think the uranium percentage at Cigar Lake is on the order of 19, 20% uranium. And at Olympic Dam, I think you're talking about 0.04%, which is, I believe, less than a pound a ton. It's just You've got very favorable mining conditions and other things that make Olympic, and, of course, size that make Olympic Dam the, the, the big daddy. What, uh, what about um, Westmoreland? What, 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 what's the resource there? The, the resource at Westmoreland is, is uh, on the order of 50 million pounds. I believe it's 48.5 million pounds, and that's 24 million tons, I believe, at point, just, just under 0.1%, which is about two pounds a ton. What makes Westmoreland such a terrific deposit economically is that it's all very close to the surface. It's, you've got very wide um, intervals in the deposit, very close to surface that are amenable to low-cost open-pit mining at what we think is a strip ratio that will probably be less than 4 to 1. Um, and the entire deposit doesn't go any deeper than, I believe, 60 meters. So you're looking at a very low-cost operation with relatively good grades because obviously two pounds a ton on a on a uh, revenue basis aggregates to you know, 100. And at current prices, if you could get contracts at current prices, you're looking at you know close to $150 a ton of revenue. So you obviously got very very nice economics potentially there. And we'll, we'll have a good sense of these economics when we get the scoping study numbers, which are being done right now by Minproc. Those numbers, uh, Dominic, are going to be available to the marketplace, we believe, by the end of the first quarter. And we've engaged this company, Minproc, who are sort of the go-to people uh, in the uranium world right now. They're the folks that just built Longer Heinrich for Paladin. Mm-hmm. And they're doing, I believe, they're working on Paladin's other project that they have in Malawi, and, and they've done other feasibility work for other companies um, in the uranium space right now, so they're 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 very highly regarded in terms of their engineering um, abilities and their expertise in uranium, which is important because that expertise is in so much short supply. By way of example, though, when Rio Tinto were going to build this project, they were going to scale it, I believe, at 3,000 ton a day, which got you in terms of production levels um, a deposit that produced on the order of two and a half million pounds of uranium a year. And they were going to put that deposit in production when uranium was $16 a pound. They were hopeful to get $16 contracts, and this is back a decade ago. So we've had a lot of cost inflation and what have you, but we think, you know, we are going to be looking at a project that's that's very, very robust economically. In terms of a comparable, that scale of operation at 2.5 million pounds is exactly the same size as Longer Heinrich, which Paladin just built and completed and is now up and running in... Namibia, and that was done for, I believe, about 90 to $95 million U.S., so that gives you kind of an order of magnitude of what we're looking at. Very uh, briefly, because uh, this has been a fascinating interview, but it's, we're kind of going over a little bit. Just uh, quickly, um, tell us, uh, Mark, about your track record, what you've done. Well, I've been, I've been involved in the resource business for over 25 years. My family was kind of involved in it, so that's how I tended to get involved in it. I went got a business degree and I have a CFA, but I've always aligned myself with uh, very smart technical people, which has been a, a great way to go to build resource companies. I think you have to have a mix of business people and very good technical people to build a, a serious company. And I've been involved in a number of other things that have had some success. One that you might be familiar with is a company called Aqualine, which has got a very interesting, very large-scale uh, silver deposit in Argentina. I am familiar with it. That company's done quite well, and we, we, we think it'll do quite well going forward. So we've got a reasonably successful record. Who's your senior geologist? In in Laramide, our senior geologist is a fellow named Peter Mullins, who's definitely one of the smarter evaluations guys I know of in the business. And that's important, too. A lot of people, 
you know, that when you meet in the technical world, you have some very smart people academically. It's rare to get technical people that also have sort of the business sense to know what kind of project's going to make it and what's not going to make it. And certainly when we saw Westmoreland, I mean, we we had a deal done with the vendor on Westmoreland within 24 hours when we recognized the potential of that deposit, and certainly it's paid off for us. And what about, apart from Westmoreland, do, do you have any other properties uh, worldwide? We've got an interesting package of assets in the U.S., Dominic, that we bought um, from Barrick. And Barrick had bought them and inherited them, really, when they bought Homestake Mining, which is, of course, a fabulous legacy American mining name. And Homestake was intimately involved in the uranium business for years and years and was a serious producer in the U.S. They had a few assets left at the at the tail end of the last boom that they held on to, and we were able to buy those. The most prominent one is in Grants, New Mexico. And Grants is a district... Um, which was the largest historical district in, the, in America with 350 million pounds of production. And we think grants will come back uh, in a big way uh, because there's an awful lot of remnant reserves in and around grants, and what it needs is a big new plant to, to service all of that because, unfortunately, in a master stroke of, of uh, brilliant timing, the last of the seven operating mills in grants was torn down, I believe, about 18 months ago. So there's no way to process any of this stuff anymore. But I do think, because the one thing is, I mean, in terms of the nuclear power issue going forward, I mean, you're going to have demand growth in nuclear because you've got worldwide utilities building new plants. You've got 450 plants now, 100 of which are American. But the American um, production uh, is only 4 million pounds a year, and they need on the order of I believe 75 million pounds or something like that a year to service their existing fleet. So in terms of domestic security supply concerns, you know, we believe that the American uh, administration, and they are, the current administration certainly is, and I don't see any reason why they'll change, no matter who's in power in 2008, is going to definitely want to get security supply. I mean, they already have security supply concerns in oil. I don't think they want to repeat that experience in other areas of energy. And in the case of uranium, they certainly have enough domestic uranium that they could supply all of their current and prospective future needs from domestic sources. So we do think that it's useful to have a position in the, the U.S. for that reason. And uh, as we close, Mark, well, actually, just briefly, um, tell us uh, about the uh, copper and gold that you have at uh, Westmoreland. Is that significant as well? Well, we don't know. We're going we're gonna to explore that as a secondary uh, er area of, of interest. There are there's some very interesting gold assays that were that were um, turned up by the previous operators, uh, Rio on the on the um, Westmoreland, but they were they were obviously interested in the uranium and they were pushing it towards development. So they really didn't follow up on much of that. But we do have intervals as high as a couple of meters at 85 grams of gold at uh, Westmoreland and some of the structures that also carry uranium. So those will be a those will certainly be a target that'll be getting some attention this year. We have a big big program coming this year in Australia, 35,000 meters of drilling, starting probably in May. Mark, why don't you give out uh, your ticker symbol and uh, your website address? Yeah, no, I'd be happy to do that, Dominic, and thanks for the interview. Uh, again, the, it's Laramide Resources. We're traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange. The website is www.laramide.com, uh, and the ticker symbol is LAMLAM on Toronto. Great. Mark, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yep, thanks again, Dominic. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com. 
Vein Minerals is an aim-listed mineral exploration and development company with interests in gold, silver, copper and uranium. Their commercial director is Matthew Idians, and I'm sitting with him now in his elegant and glamorous offices in Cadogan Square. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You described Vein Minerals as a self-funded explorer. What does that mean? Well, when we came to um, list in, on, on AIM in June of 2004, our plan was to, um, to be able to be self-funding in order to not have to come back to the market unless we had um, good news. So if we found something and we wanted to drill it, for example, then additional funding was required. So the way we went about this was putting into production, we have a little um, high-grade operation in gold and silver in um, Mexico called Diablito, and that uh, produces uh, $400,000 US dollars a month revenues for us, of which uh, about 250000 is profits. So um, that basically now pays for the, for the rest of the group. So... Um, for us, the downside is, is, is limited because we're hopefully never going to run out of money. Well, certainly not for the five to seven year life mine that we've got at the moment. So. Very nice. And then you moved into uranium when? December 2004, when the uranium price was $19 a pound. You know, the trend was going to be there. We could see the economics for uranium being very strong. There was only one way the price was going to go. We were fortunate enough to, to, to know a chap called Chris Hefton, who is now our uranium geologist and COO of, of our uranium subsidiary. And uh, we basically engaged Chris to, uh, to build our portfolio, which he has done superbly over the last couple of years. So why don't you tell us about your portfolio? Obviously, you've got this gold and silver mine in Mexico. What else have you got? We have um, gold and copper exploration in Paraguay. And... Um, the uranium projects, which is really our, our, our main interest at the moment. Uh, Paraguay has, has been a very much a sampling program. The city don't seem to be terribly interested in, in sampling, which is understandable, until you get to a drilling stage where mm -hmm. you can really find something substantial. Uh, there's little interest there. So we've sort of put that on the back burner. We're hoping to start drilling Q1, no, sorry, H1, um, and um, that will be of some interest then. But at the moment, the uranium portfolio is really where we believe we can create some substantial value. And where are your properties? They're all in the US, in northern Arizona and Utah at the moment. And are Arizona and Utah mining-friendly states? Very much so, yeah. yeah. No, there's a big precedence on mining in, in northern Arizona, particularly our, our Brescia pipes, um, which are on the north-south rim of the, the Grand Canyon, so you know, obviously that environmentally could be a little sensitive, but there's 23 million, <laughs> pounds of, 23 million pounds of uranium has been mined there in the 80s and 90s, so there is definitely a president there. Um, Energy Fuels Nuclear, which was the, the largest private um, uranium-producing company in the, in the, the, during that time, um, did a very good reclamation program, um, so everything really is, is on our side, and the law is on our side, more importantly. And uh, how have your drill results been? Uh, we, we just started drilling. We've done um, a program at the North Wash uh, project, which is in Utah, which we twinned um, some existing drill holes there, which were drilled in the 70s by Kotter Corporation. Um, the assays are in, the chemical assays are in, and they're pending. So um, that'll be some news that we'll hopefully be announcing in the next few weeks. And then we, uh, we announced recently that we've started our um, drilling program on our Brescia Pipe program, where we've got uh, 29 targets. Um, the Brescia pipes are sort of, uh, uh, well, they're different to normal uranium deposits in the fact they're quite small but high grade. They're sort of around the 1% grade. Um, and they basically contain between 1 and, and one and 6 million pounds per pipe. And the average, I think, is about 3 million. With the price of uranium at $75 a pound. You know, they're, they're the bank likes it. Very profitable. <laughs> 
So um, why don't you tell us, Matt, how you came to be in charge of Vane and, and what your background is? Well, I, I used to work up in the city until 2002. I worked for um, Lang and Crookshank Investment Management. And um, a great friend of mine, Robert Jeffcock, rang me up and said um, he was looking to start a exploration company with four very overqualified uh, geologists who were ex-Freeport MacMoran, um, mm-hmm. Steve Van Nort, Clark Arnold, Frank Nelson and Al Edwards, who have uh, all got some considerable experience and uh, a lot of large discoveries under their belts. He sent through to, the, uh, through to me their CVs, and um, I thought if I was going to make a leap into the mining industry, there was no better people to do it with than these guys. Let's uh, look at uh, Vane. How many uh, shares outstanding? Are there any warrants and options? What's your market cap? Uh, we've got 147,143,823 shares issued. Uh, there are some options which the management have, um, which uh, are at 11p, which was our issue price. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are about 4 million of those. Um, and we have a convertible loan, which was organised back in September last year with Geiger Counter Fund, um, which was £750,000, an 8% coupon. Uh, and they convert, they were issued when the share price was 9p, and they convert at 12p. What percentage do, do, does management own? Um, management and founders is 65%, and management is about 40%. I just looked at your chart. It's, uh, the price has shot up in the last few days, too. Is it 18p? Uh, um, yeah, 17.5p. 17.5p. Yeah. Given, if you think back in November, you were trading at 6 or 7p, was it, or 8p? Yeah, 7, 8p. That was a nice trade if, if you got in on it. Um, yeah, it would be, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, you're, you're moving up because it's a good company and you're moving up on the back of the uranium story, but you had another bit of news out in the last week. We have, yeah. We, um, we were approached by Geiger Counter again, actually, funny. They were um, trying to buy shares in the market and uh, couldn't get as much as they wanted, so they said, would we like to issue them some um, additional shares? And uh, we had the authority through Section 89 of the Companies Act for the directors to issue shares, so we, we issued them another million shares at 15p. The price shot up on the back of that. It did news. indeed, yeah. yeah. Let, let's talk a, a bit more specifically about your uranium properties in Utah and Arizona. Presumably, you've staked a lot of land. Chris has, has, has built up this whole portfolio. We now have 4,966 acres, I think, is our actual land position. Um, the, the, the thing about the pipes is they're very small. I mean, uh, you, between 20 and 40 acres is, is, is a sort of a, you know, a pipe size that you can actually mine it out. And the mineralized area is, is literally can be one to 200 meters wide. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's it, you know, and, and um, you know, 600 meters deep. And you're, you're looking at um, three million pounds can be contained in about 185,000 tons of, of ore. So they, these are really quite small in size. And mm-hmm. therefore that's, that's the wonderful thing about mining them is they do very little damage environmentally because they're so small and compact. Um, so our, our land position as such, in acre terms, doesn't really relate to the potential of the ore bodies, if you sort of mean. I see. It doesn't seem quite so big, but actually the potential there is, is, is quite substantial. I mean, we have, with uh, 29 pipes, you, have, you know, for those 3 million each, you know, nearly 90 million pounds potential. And so tell us about your, your kind of your plans to develop these projects and uh, how much it's going to cost. Well, we're, we're drilling away furiously at the moment. We've got uh, four drilling permits through on the pipes um, for Miller, Red Dyke, Big Red and Rabbit. Um, we've got ten pending, um, which are in uh, with the Forest Service. Um, and uh, we've, we've had sort of communications back and forth with them. And we're hoping that that will go through sort of fairly soon. 
and then we will move on to, to, to drill those as well. I mean, the idea is to get as much drilling as we possibly can um, and create as many pounds in the ground as we, as we can get our hands on. There are nearly 400 uranium exploration companies now out there. Why should I choose yours? Uh, we're in a politically stable environment. We, uh, we, we, I believe that our share price is, is, is very reasonably priced, to say the least. Uh, Even now it's doubled. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, we, we, when we first announced that we were going into um, uranium, when uranium was sort of hyped up, and, mm -hmm. and it was only $19 in December 2004, I think we, we announced back then, and the share price went straight up to 23p. Um, we had a shareholder who had um, in excess of 10% at that stage, who was an institutional shareholder, and they sold down their position during that rise. And um, I think it left us with a bit of an overhang of stock, which has now clearly been taken up. And, um, and, and we've now... You know, I think uh, with, with Geiger Counter especially showing that they couldn't get the stock in the market and they had to mm -hmm. come to us for a private placing, um, you know, there, there's, we're in a good, strong position. The shares are now well held. And um, I think there's, there should be only one way we can go. We've got plenty of news flow in the future. Um, you know, we've got the drilling coming through. We're now, we've built the portfolio, which was the time-consuming bit. I think that our share price may have lagged a bit during that period because mm -hmm. we, were, we were in the process. We couldn't really do anything because we were so busy building the portfolio and acquiring stuff um, that uh, the exploration side of it has been quite slow during that period. But now I think, we, you know, it's all my hands to the pump and, you know, we're, um, we now should be able to create some value fairly rapidly. How long do you think it'll be before you're actually producing? Well, uh, that very much relates to, um, to, to mill sites. Um, our Happy Jack mine, which is, um, uh, has had historically 3.1 million pounds mined out of it, uh, we've got some exploration potential there to increase our, our... We've only got a small amount there. It's 150,000, 170,000 pounds um, resource at the moment there. And um, that, we believe, could, we could extend out to about a million pounds. Um, but it's, it's an old mine, it's got infrastructure there, it's got ramps and, and, and everything, the, everything there, the infrastructure, power, etc. is all there. Um, if we can add on the pounds uh, through exploration, then that could be in production fairly fast. Um, the mills in the area are, um, there are two mills in the area, one 70 miles away and one 40 miles, an hour, or 40 miles away, and uh, those... Um, will be taking, well, IUC own one of them, and they have announced, I believe, that they will be taking ore in mid-2008. Um, so there's no point in us doing anything before then, because there's nowhere for us to send our ore. But um, I don't think we'd be in a position to mine it before then anyway. As we close, Matt, uh, why don't you give out uh, your website address and uh, your ticker symbol? Well, we're, um, you can find out most of the information on all of our projects at uh, www.vainminerals, which is V-A-N-E, minerals.com. And uh, our ticker is VML.L, for those people abroad. <laughs> and uh, what, why, why Vane Minerals? Why the name Vane? Uh, Van Nort, Arnold's, Nelson and Edwards. Very clever. <laughs> <laughs>
Now on Commodity Watch Radio, the Dines interview continues. One of the things I read in your newsletter that fascinated me was the uh, the idea of a, a, a cartel of uranium-producing nations. <laughs> that is another one of my most... That, that, on the outrageousness scale, that ranks with my prediction that the environmentalists will be the primary proponents of nuclear power. Uh, that's right. I am looking for a cartel. The world hasn't even thought about it yet. But, you know, there's... There's an oil cartel. Um, the Russians are talking about the gas cartel. Um, I'm not talking about beans. I'm talking about uh, <laughs> them and uranium. But now, why not a, a uranium cartel with America and Australia and Canada um, alone with uh, stable countries? Well, I shouldn't say that. You know what they make in stables. But anyway, um, this would be uh, uh, the next cartel after fossil fuels go. What about the uh, Australian government? What about the, the the legal problems there with producing uranium? They were more, you know, it took a lot of nerve for me to recommend Australian uranium stocks in, in 2000. Um, it took more nerve than uh, than brains, I suppose. But um, my my wager was that with such a valuable asset they had, as much as they hated uranium and nuclear, uh, that there would be a political change, that the whole world, whether they knew it or not or liked it or not, was going to go nuclear. And the Australians themselves were thrilled to sell those, to sell their stocks. I mean, they were 10 cents a share and they got 20 cents and grabbed it. And now they're looking at it at $2 and $20. They didn't realize that this bull market is a tsunami. It's like nothing before it, uh, since stock markets were around. And, the um, the Australian government itself is evolving. There's a big um, uh, there's a big vote coming up on April 27th um, as to whether or not uh, to allow uranium mining. And it looks as if the polls are showing that the Australian public could really use the money that the Canadians are get selling getting selling their uranium, and uh, they are no longer willing to just let it sit in the ground. The uh, problem is uh, Australia has quite a bit of coal, and uh, the coal industry has a vested interest in in, uh, in that. Um, you know, always uh, selfless, uh, is selfless selflessness is, is a wonderful thing to behold. But in the event, uh, I'm wagering that Australia is going to go is going to allow nuclear mining. Um, and but even if they don't, and a lot of my Australian mining stocks have done very very well. But even if they don't. If they don't, it will make the Canadian mining stocks even more valuable. So what I've had my subscribers do is to buy a range of them. I'm adamantly against just buying one stock because this, these are all early-stage uh, mining uh, ventures, and uh, I can be pretty confident that uh, by, let's say, putting $1,000 uh, or pounds or a multiple of that level into 10, 10 mining stocks, I'm pretty confident that at least one is going to be a spectacular winner. So far, we're running about eight or nine out of ten are, are uh, well, they're all profitable, actually, but seven or eight uh, is my usual average of, of winners. 
And um, that is the smart way to buy it. And I think Australia, to answer your question, is going nuclear, whether they know it or not. What struck me about when I read your newsletter and, and hearing you talk about your basket of stocks is, although you recommend getting a basket of stocks, your, the Dines portfolio is either pure uranium or precious metals. There's no diversification out, outside of that. Um, for the moment, that is correct. Um, of course, those are the two best-performing groups of the world. So, you know, it's uh, Napoleon's uh, command to his uh, generals was, follow the sound of the cannon. And uh, my command to my subscribers is, uh, suivez l'argent, <laughs> follow the money. And uh, so we're very heavily committed, but there are different levels. There, are, there is, a, uh, for example, uh, an ultra-blue chip called Arriva. That's uh, a high-priced blue chip uh, uranium stock. And there are also stocks selling for pennies that are very attractive, particularly the Australians, uh, where, you know, you can buy a stock at 50 cents. If it goes to $5, you've made 10 times your capital. And that's the way these stocks are moving. Uh, the, and the public's not even in yet. They're still, at this point, they're just kind of sniffing around. And um, my third book, uh, Mass Psychology, mm -hmm. uh, goes through the various uh, stations, not of the cross, but of the of bull markets. And these stations are pretty regular. Uh, first is denial. Uh, second, uh, after they go up, uh, the public will say, uh, well, yes, it was valid, uh, but they're already too high. Uh, and then uh, finally, um, they'll sell short, and then at the top, they'll buy. This is what happened in the Internet. It happens in all bull markets. And my mass psychology book is really the blueprint for how we're going to handle this uh, bull market. I think uh, public opinion of uranium will change very quickly if oil hits 150 or $200 a barrel. Well, that's right. That's right. You get one good terrorist event, well, a bad one, and uh, and they're after us. I mean, they're after the uh, they're after the oil. They know it's our jugular vein, and uh, there'd be no better way to ruin uh, or at least uh, severely harm the world's economies and uh, and breed the chaos they're looking for. But um, but it doesn't matter. Global warming is the ace of trumps. That is happening. It is for real. The, the oceans are rising. The ice sheets are melting. Uh, the polar bears are uh, beginning to do their denning uh, on land instead of uh, on ice. Even here in San Francisco, uh, the uh, forsythias are blooming in January. Uh, the signs are everywhere. The planet is warming up, and we need to understand that the oceans are going to rise. There is no way to stop it at this point. And uh, the best we can do is go immediately to uh, nuclear and price oil so high that uh, that people just stop using it. And um, it's going to be a massive disruption, no question about it. But don't blame me. I'm just the mess. Don't blame the messenger for the news. I'm, t I'm trying to pull Revere the world into awakening and doing something immediately because this is beyond. Look at George Bush. Is, is excited about ethanol and because it'll grow more corn and he'll get a vote from the uh, our corn belt. This is beyond politics. This is survival. Yeah, and, and I noticed Hillary was saying last week that uh, she was going to tax all the oil companies on their profits. My point is the age of petroleum is over. It's over. It's, it's, we need to stop it. We're addicted to it. And, and the, all I can say is the glaciers are melting. You know, the snow, don't bother going to skiing in, in, a, 
in uh, Bolivia this year. Don't bother going. And Switzerland is going to start feeling it. You know, the world is about to change drastically. Is that good? Well, uh, sure. If you want to, if you want to grow rice in the, in the, in the, in London, uh, that's all right. But there'll be droughts, there'll be floods, the storms will be horrendous. You know, we're in for a different kind of planet. Now we can either choose that or get come to our senses and realize that that what we've done throughout the entire history of humanity needs to be reexamined drastically. This calls for radical change. Nothing else will work. Let me ask you, uranium mining and uh, the building of all these nuclear plants in, in China and presumably eventually in the West is going to boost demand for equipment, services. Are there companies emerging in, in this area that we should be looking at? Well, yes and no. Arriva is one of them. Uh, General Electric is another, but it's a small part of their business. Mm -hmm. I, uh, we're, I'm now doing research on that, and we're looking for that type of company, but none of them have been good enough to be, uh, to merit, uh, being added to the Dines Letters recommended, uh, supervised lists. But, uh, you can be sure that when I find stocks like that, I will put that, uh, into the newsletter immediately. The, um, and you know the, the the question of what to do with nuclear waste is ve that's the the main problem with it as far as I'm concerned on a realistic basis. The new plants are very much safer than the original ones, and certainly better than the bungling uh, ones at Chern Chernobyl. I mean, France has been 80% nuclear for decades, and they have yet to have an accident. And I hope they never do, of course. But um, it's a it's it's actually safer than than a lot of other. Um, uh, I mean, all energy sources are dangerous. They're all combustible, after all. How, how do you get rid of nuclear waste? Well, that's that's the killer question, and that's going to be the challenge for the next generation. There are a number of possibilities. Uh, number one, um, in Finland, they're building extremely deep holes uh, miles down into the rock and putting it there. Another possibility is putting it into... Um, uh, into uh, spaceships and, and getting it off the planet. But the most likely one, in my opinion, is going to be some kind of central facility where um, uh, what I envision is um, uh, all the processing of uranium is done at one place, and when it's allowed to go all the way to pl plutonium, there's very little waste left. Uh, the problem is when individual countries, such as Iran, um, do their own processing. Uh, nobody knows what they'll do with the plutonium, but this way would get this would get rid of most of the waste and make it much less radioactive, and then that could be buried. And I, I suspect that that's what the United Nations or some other intra. Um, national body would will have to develop is to uh, uh, give nuclear power or give um, fuel rods to all nations in the world that want to buy it um, and centralize it that way and then keep the waste all in uh, in plutonium and then bury it very deeply i don't know i mean look uh, i remember uh, reading about thomas edison mm -hmm. a couple of you know a couple of centuries ago uh, that's not true, but a long time ago, um, who um, uh, favored direct current. 
and he said that if you go to alternating current, people will be electrocuted. Well, he was right. Uh, they went they went to alternating current, and children stuck their fingers in in, the, in sockets and died. But you know what? We still use electricity, and the because the question was whether you have electricity or shiver in the dark. And I think the same judgment will be made today. What about the risk of uh, a, a nuclear plant becoming a terrorist target? I think the risk is high. And the answer to that is protect it. Uh, you know, they could, uh, they could certainly run, dive an airplane into, uh, uh, into one of the large uh, uh, coal-fired facilities, facilities uh, in London. Look, you know, you, you could take a small quantity of a radioactive substance and mix it with some dynamite on a, on a truck and, and set it off in the city, and uh, it would be uninhabitable for hundreds of years. So the dangers of nuclear, nuclear terror are there. We have to live with it. This was the Pandora's box opened in 1944 or 45 uh, with, the, uh, with Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We are in the nuclear age, and uh, this danger and, and the crazies who want to use it are there. And uh, look, uh, protect yourself. What can I tell you? Would you be buying um, oil and natural gas shares at the moment? What I said originally, when in, in 2000, the Dines letter came out and said that the leading group, the leading groups are going to be natural resources. We are shifting from financial instruments and electronics and high tech. Sell all of your high tech stocks and get into raw materials. At that point, they were at the bottom of a 20 year bear market. And after 20 years, they were devastated. All these, the gold was at $260 an ounce and, uh, and all the rest of it. And I said, this is the time to buy. They're all on the bargain counter. Uh, energy was one of my favorite groups because of my bullishness on China and India. And, um, but I said within the energy group, I would favor uranium because that is already in shortage, whereas the other ones will have their normal cyclical uh, ups and downs. And that certainly has come true in natural gas, which has crashed. And um, even oil has come down $20 a barrel. So... Uh, but uranium, you'll notice, is right flush up against its all-time high at $75 a pound. So oil is a cyclical energy, and I have the alternative of uranium, which in my opinion is going vertical from here. It, I mean, just ref I've never seen a commodity in my career go from $8 to 75 without a single correction. It's been straight up. All the uranium for sale has been gobbled up. So I would say that, that oils are good, but they will have their cycles. Now, I will add this. The Middle East has the most valuable real estate on the planet. Uh, America will gradually be pushed out of it, and the strategically the giants, um, Russia and China and India and Japan, will be fighting for that Middle Eastern oil, uh, not to mention the Islamists. <clears throat> so this is going to be the focus of a great deal of warfare <laughs> in coming years, but the value of oil is going to be very high, and the longer it goes on, uh, the more valuable it will become. Eventually, they'll dig up garbage dumps for the plastic now being discarded. But for the moment... Uh, we're in a cyclical downturn. Uh, there's there's a, an oversupply of oil that is temporary, 
<clears throat> excuse me, and uh, this temporary uh, glut uh, has made it so that we've sold our oil stocks. There were a few we had in our lists, but we've taken very big profits on them, unfortunately, near their tops. And for the moment, we're out of them. But uranium is different, and the precious metals are different. And uh, those two are dominate our supervised uh, recommendations at this point. You said you trade your oil stocks. Do you generally trade, or are you a, uh, more of a holder? We have five, sep we have five separate lists. Uh, there are never more than ten stocks in each list, so that somebody could put an equal amount into each one, each of the entries, and make it suitable for $10,000 or $100,000 dollars or pounds, whatever. Uh, furthermore, the lists are broken down. List number one is conservative uh, for, um, for more conservative long-term investors. Number two are uh, growth situations that we intend to hold for long-term for younger people, uh, growth stocks. Number three is our supervised gold uh, and silver and precious metals list. Four is short-term trading and five is a very low-priced penny, uh, penny stocks, um, usually gold and silver, but, but in the last five years, six years, it's been heavily dominated by the uraniums and, uh, and doing uh, very well indeed on all of these. So uh, to answer your question, uh, we really run the gamut, but there are ten entries in each, which is enough for uh, any uh, investor to put a little bit into each of the ten. I see. And what about uh, the base metals? Do you have an opinion on those at the moment? Well, we've just come out with our big annual forecast issue. Is, uh, I think you've got a copy. It's 44 pages, um, 46 pages, actually. Uh, did you see that? I did. Okay, well, we covered the geopolitical situation on that. Uh, I believe that, um, uh, that the commodity, we turned bullish on the commodity markets, as I said, in, uh, in 2000. We turned bearish on uh, the commodities late last year uh, because um, of a, because I feel that China is uh, is due for a cyclical uh, short-term downturn, not a crash, a short-term downturn for a number of reasons, and um, so I'm I'm uh, I'm bearish on on the base metals. I don't think that's the place to put money right now. I think that uh, the breaks in copper and what have you are uh, indicative that uh, of a business slowdown or at least certainly a, a, an end to uh, inventory building. And I don't think that's not, that's not where I'm leading my subscribers. What, what do, you talked about cyclical downturns then. What, what's your view of housing in America at the moment? Uh, the la in recent years, I've been very negative on it. I think we're in for an international real estate decline. Um, just a normal cyclical um, uh, one, perhaps. But um, I think that, um, of course, real estate is not fungible, and there's always exceptions, and for some people it's a home rather than an investment. But I think that, uh, <clears throat> but, uh, but I think that we are at the cusp of a very severe downturn in, uh, in, uh, in real estate. I, I would not recommend it at all. In London at the moment, uh, we haven't really had the correction that you, you, you're, you seem to be having in the States. It's just it's mental. There's a shortage of supply, and everyone's scrabbling over every property that goes on the market. Is the math psychology, as I mentioned before, is very important in my, in my, in my math psychology book. Of real estate is, uh, is very different from that of stocks. It's much stickier. It's, uh, you don't just go out and, and, 
and sell a piece of real estate the next day. You need to find a buyer. It's it's almost uh, primitive it, uh, it, the way stocks were um, in, uh, when Wall Street began. Um, but the internet has speeded things up uh, quite a bit in real estate, and you're beginning to get some faster movements. But the elements of mass psychology that I mentioned before in normal bull markets will um, express itself somewhat differently in real estate. Uh, as long as uh, people use the word shortage, um, then that is a bull market and uh, frequently appears uh, late in the stages of a bull market when they say there's a shortage. The truth is there, the amount of real estate is always the same, and it's the demand for it that fluctuates. And when there's a shortage, it means there's a lot of demand and frequently marks a top. When the psychology, when the mass psychology shifts <clears throat> uh, to bearish, the whole tenor of the market uh, shifts. You can see it happening here in California, right before your eyes. Uh, it's no longer, um, it's, it's suddenly a buyer's market. And the seller is holding out for the highest price he'd ever heard of. Um, whereas the buyer is looking for lower prices. So the first sign of a top would be a an evaporation or a, sh or a sharp diminishing of the number of transactions. I don't know if that showed up in London for, uh, yet, but it will. And uh, that will be the sign to run for your life because from these levels, uh, the decline could be very severe. And um, as the price that buyers are willing to pay keeps dropping, the gap between what the seller is dreaming of, um, again, this is all basic mass psychology. You can read my book if you're interested. But mm -hmm. uh, the psychology shifts, and you begin getting sudden, severe drops in real estate because it's so sticky. And the drops are because, oh, people die or get divorced or move or whatever, and they have to sell and take whatever they can get. So I'm looking for some kind of severe break in the real estate market uh, later this year uh, or definitely by next. Why don't we just touch briefly uh, on the general stock indices? What do you see happening there with the Dow, the S&P, the FTSE? The leading averages are in uptrend, on, on major uptrends. Major, for those of you not familiar with uh, visual analysis, um, is uh, the main trend, like uh, Charles H. Dow compared major to a tide and intermediate to a wave and a ripple to day-to-day uh, -day trading. Um, the major trend is up. The short-term trend is very overbought, and I'm concerned about a real estate bust and a commodity bust um, adding to or somehow and, and, a, and an automobile bust happening in America. Um, I mean, Toyota is, has been eating our lunch uh, the same way America once ate Rolls-Royce's lunch. So, you know, the wheel turns. and But America's got very serious problems, and for the moment, uh, the trend is up. The, the major trend is up, and the short term is down. Um, so... I, I don't have as strong a feeling on on that question as I have on your other questions, but I'm watching it and waiting for 
When I have a strong opinion, it'll be in my newsletter. You describe in your newsletter that we're facing an energy crisis, we're facing a climate crisis. You also mention a monetary crisis. Why don't we touch on the precious metals? The whole monetary system, the world's monetary system is corrupt. Uh, my second book, The Invisible Crash, um, goes into this in, in quite a bit of detail. They don't teach it in schools, but the uh, General Convention in, in uh in uh, 1922, uh, doubled the money supply uh, to pay for World War One, and that launched the inflation of the 1920s and the crash of the 30s. And uh, they did the same thing after World War Two, and uh, the whole world is printing money uh, with uh, no relationship to uh, to underlying um, to the underlying value of the wealth being created. And uh, this is a house of cards, which is why we have so many uh, monetary crises running around these days. Um, this one currency gets picked off after another, and uh, they're all managing the currencies, um, the uh, the central bankers. And it's a very, very this is a answering that question would take me hours, but um, <laughs> we're in a very serious situation, and already the uh, price of gold is going up to reflect. Uh, the ruination of paper money and starting again um, with a new with a new uh, money backed by gold, and uh, the whole world has been suckered into holding dollars and pa paper pounds. Look, America is the only country that has not been selling its gold. Every other central banker is selling it to buy to buy uh, U.S. Treasury paper to get an income. Um, the trouble is, the guys who are doing that will be safely dead by the time it hits the fan. And uh, but what America will do with the gold at Fort Knox is have its next currency based on it. Uh, we've done it a number of times before. I thought they were selling it. No, no, not, a, not an ounce. Uh, the ones who are selling it are Canada and England, Germany, uh, Europeans. They're also, the bankers are all selling their oil. Uh, sorry, their gold. Not an ounce. Clever, clever. I thought they sold it to manage the markets. <laughs> no, no, not an ounce. What they, America doesn't have to sell anything. They just print it. The whole world is... is listen, this is a whole separate topic. You can read my letter on that if you want. But anyway, the, the more serious question uh, added on top of that uh, is, is uh, an international civil war. This is the first war in history that dares not speak its name. It's called a war on terrorism. It's called a clash of civilization and other rubbish like that. It's completely false. What we are now in is a religious war, and I'm strictly neutral. I'm just saying that what I observe is that the entire world is in a religious war, and it's between what I call the uh, the orthodox versus the uh, seculars, and it's in every country and emerging in, even in America. You know the struggle over abortion and uh, and the death penalty and and uh, stem cells. All these things reflected. Uh, but uh, but it's even gotten violent. I mean, there have been doctors killed, abortion doctors who've been killed. The real where you really see it, of course, is right now in Lebanon, uh, between uh, between the two sides, the Orthodox and the seculars. You see it in uh, um, certainly in Gaza, Israel. It's just below the surface in Israel. I mean, believe me, if that Arab problem was solved for them, uh, they would be at each other's throats, the Orthodox and the seculars. So it's happened in Kosovo was an interesting one. That was Eastern and Western Christianity were on different sides. Uh, uh, one and Western side sided with the Muslims. That's an aberration. 
Uh, but geopolitically, of course, you have Northern Ireland between Catholics and Protestants. That's still simmering. And <clears throat> the whole world is, is undergoing this, this uh, civil war, this revolution. And it's certainly happening within, within Islam. I mean, bin Laden said that his first act on taking control would be to kill the Muslims who, who, uh, who did not uh, follow his, uh, his, his, uh, his uh, orthodox faith. And uh, this is an overlay, a political overlay on the entire energy situation because uh, the Muslims will control, as I said before, the most valuable uh, real estate on the planet. And uh, how that's handled is going to be critical in, in how things play out. I cover a lot of this geopolitical stuff in my newsletter, but uh, basically uh, the Dines letter feels that we're at a very critical juncture. And uh, it's being handled very poorly, and... Um, in my opinion, and uh, but then again, I just work here, and um, <laughs> you guys are on your own. I mean, I, all I can do is tell the truth and detach from result. So we should buy gold, uranium, and silver. Should we buy some silver as well? I like all of the precious metals. Um, one of my theories, the Dines Wolfpack theory, is that stocks of similar economic backgrounds move together, and um, as a result, you you see not only uh, gold and silver moving together, but also platinum and palladium. One of my old predictions, when I turned bullish on gold at $35 an ounce, and that was the most hated investment on the planet at the time, and I got fired from my job on Wall Street for it before it went up to $400, uh, sorry, $850 an ounce, um, and then uh, the firm I had been working for went broke, and uh, that was the first evidence I've ever had in my life that God really exists. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, the, uh, the, uh, there's also um, an industrial application in silver, but it's basically a silver coin is good anywhere in the world as is a gold coin. The platinum palladium, I'm bullish, uh, number one, because of the Dines Wolfpack theory, or DuPat, we call it, um, uh, in, uh, in our company. But, uh, but in addition to that, I think that platinum and palladium will benefit from the, as I said before, the automotive catalytic converters as the pollution gets worse and worse with all these cars. Uh, so, but those four elements, I also said uh, uh, at rock bottom that, um, that I thought that the other precious metals would someday begin to move with gold and silver, uh, you know, rhodium, iridium, etc. And, uh, but, not yet. They're still way too uh, scarce to really have uh, fluid markets. But I think platinum and, pal and palladium should also be included now. Jim Dines, you've been so generous with your time. It's been absolutely fascinating and uh, interesting and insightful talking to you. I'm sure lots of listeners are going to want to find out more about you and your newsletter. So why don't you give out uh, some information about how they can subscribe to your newsletter and, and so on? Well, uh, I think the easiest way is to just look at us on the website, dinesletter.com. But, uh, but I'd like to mention one thing. I used to lecture in England uh, quite a bit in the 1970s when uh, gold was uh, at $35. My prediction at that time was that it would go to $400, and um, people were pretty incredulous. I don't blame them. I mean, it's quite a, at that point, the U.S. government had sworn they would never let the price of gold go above $35. So much for American uh, guarantees, but um, that's another whole topic also. But um, I haven't uh, lectured in, in London for many years, and I guess I should one of these days while I still um, can move around and travel and what have you. Um, and um, 
but I really feel that uh, I feel something similar. This interview brought out in me the feeling I had when Gold was at rock bottom and I was in London giving lectures, and I just don't have a hall. I didn't know where to go, and it's it's so much easier to stay here in San Francisco and by my pool in the sunshine. <laughs> but um, but uh, yeah, so anybody who'd like Come. to read my stuff can uh, just check uh, dinesletter.com, D-I-N-E-S, and um, read it. And, um, if you like it, follow it. If you don't, don't. It won't change my standard of living either way. Okay. Listen, Jim, why don't you come and do a talk for Mindsight? They have presentations every month. They'd, they'd love to have you do a talk for them. Well, uh, have them write to my, write to my staff, and uh, we'll look at it. Um, yeah. I, I'll only do one more. It'll probably be my uh, final one in London. Um, I've really cut back on my traveling. I'm really enjoying California. Yeah. And, uh, and I live on a hill, yes. Well, <laughs> very sensible. Well, I'll have their people call your people. There we go. <laughs> All right. Listen, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. And I and I and I I wish you. My final thought is this. Yeah. May everybody out there may you live every day of your lives. Great final thought, Jim Dines. Thank you very much. Bye. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com. Uranium Power Corp, or UPC, explore for and develop uranium properties with the potential to host world-class economic deposits. Uranium Power has recently acquired a 50% interest in Sheep Mountain uranium mines and properties held by U.S. Energy Corp in the Crooks Gap Mining District in south-central Fremont County, Wyoming. And with me is their president, Chris Healy. Chris, hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. Hello, thank you, Dominic. Pleasure to be here. Why don't you tell us about uh, your company, what you do, where you do it, and a bit about the history of the company? Well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, Uranium Power has uh, been around um, for about 30, 40 years. Uh, recently, uh, about two years ago, changed the name to Uranium Power to, um, to emphasize the f- change of focus onto uh, uranium properties. And right now we are primarily, in fact, exclusively a uranium company. Our uh, main assets are, as you indicated, in the uh, in the United States, and they're all uh, joint ventures with a, a U.S.-based company called U.S. Energy. The um, crown jewel, if you like, is the Sheep Mountain project that you mentioned. This is a, uh, a conventional underground mine, has previously been mined, and is currently um, on standby, but is fully permitted and licensed to go into operation. And that, that makes, I think... Uh, a pretty unique story because we, we hear lots of stories of companies with uh, plans to go into production. We have the permits in place, and uh, that is, uh, in my my book, that's huge because uh, it's it's not an easy task to uh, to complete these days with uh, in the regulatory environment in the U.S. And literally, all we need to do on that property to uh, get us back to full production. Uh, in terms of regulations and, and permits, is to um, recalculate the bond, get that bond approved, and post it. We believe that's about a 30-day process. Um, so, yeah, we're 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 ready to go on that very quickly. When you say it was previously a mine, presumably it was a producing mine back in the 1970s. That's correct. In fact, back at, back to the 1950s, it was one of the early places that uranium was mined in Wyoming. Wyoming has produced a lot of uranium, uh, several hundred million pounds uh, 
over, over uh, the last 50 or so, or so years. And this was a, a mine that was developed by a company called Western Nuclear, which um, is no longer in existence. Uh, U.S. Energy acquired all the, the property and all the data uh, from Western Nuclear way back in the 70s. And uh, the mines closed down like so many mines did in the early 80s. Uh, reopened um, short, uh, for a brief period of time in the late 80s, and uh, U.S. Energy mined about 100 mil, uh, sorry, 100,000 pounds out of the deposit at a grade of um, in excess of 0.2%, which is um, a pretty decent grade for that area of the world and for this kind of sandstone-hosted deposit. Is Wyoming a, a mining-friendly state? Very much so, uh, it's, it's one of the few states in the U.S. that has a huge budget surplus, uh, largely because of coal mining, uh, because of uh, oil and gas production, um, trona mining, and, um, and coming back to the uranium mining as well, uh, which is obviously uh, enjoying a resurgence. It has one producing mine right now, the, uh, the Cameco has it through an in-situ leach operation, and there have been a large number of mines in the past. So, yes, very definitely a, a mining-friendly state. Okay, and, and why don't we talk specifically about the, the Sheep Mountain mine. What resource do you have there, proven and unproven? We have um, a, a code-compliant through the National Instrument 43101 here in Canada uh, resource of 15.6 million pounds. We have what we have to refer to as an additional historical estimate of 6.5 million pounds. And we, of course, own 50% of that, so our, our share would be about 11 million pounds. Average grade is around the 0.2% range. There are so many uranium companies springing up, and uh, it's likely that most of them will never reach production. You're, you're not far away. Apart from the final permitting, is there anything else holding you back? Well, yes, uh, of course, for conventional mining, you need a mill. And uh, there are four existing mills in the U.S., but with, with permits still in existence, that's it. Uh, there's only four? The, there's only four. In the heyday, there were 43, 42, 43, I believe, back in the uh, 60s and 70s. So now there are only four. One of them, the Sweetwater Mill, which is owned by Rio Tinto, is uh, about 20 miles down the road from us. So... Um, really close by and uh, you may be aware that uh, uranium one was in the process of uh, doing a deal to require that um, that mill just recently that deal fell apart um, Rio Tinto uh, just uh, just the other day their chief executive Lee Clifford is quoted as saying in a press release here that uh, the company has several prospects for increasing uranium production within two to five years, including resurrecting the mothball sweet ura sweetwater uranium uh, mill in Wyoming. So we are very encouraged to see that a major player uh, is seriously looking at opening that mill. And uh, we feel that uh, that is a natural source, uh, a natural place for our uh, feed to go, and we also believe that they will need that feed to, uh, to make their operation viable. One other factor that is uh, delaying uh, a decision here is that U.S. Energy, our partner, is in the process of selling their uranium assets to Uranium One also. That deal, we are uh, absolutely sure, will go ahead. We are um, 
we're hearing that it should be closed fairly soon, like, yeah, very soon, and that uh, as soon as that deal is uh, closed, we'll sit down with the new partner, and uh, we'll be going to Rio Tinto and saying and, and, and discussing plans. Effectively, you're going to have some kind of partnership going with SXR Uranium One. Yes, they, they assuming that this deal with uh, to purchase the assets from uh, U.S. Energy goes through, um, they will be our 50% partner, and, and we're very excited about that because uh, I've met uh, several of their senior people, very. Uh, very smart, very good business people, very aggressive. They want to build a company that is one of the top three or top five uranium producers in the world. And with their properties down in South Africa and Australia, uh, they're well on the way to getting there. And they, they obviously want to get into uh, the U.S. in a big way. So that, that's a very exciting partnership for us. Now, um, why don't you tell us, because you used to work for U.S. Energy, why don't, we, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, Chris? My background is I've been in the mining industry since I uh, left uh, left the British Isles in '68, so I've been around for almost 39 years now in this business uh, as a geologist. Um, 20 plus years of that was with Cameco, of course, as I'm sure your listeners will know, the, the largest producer of uranium in the world. Um, and I've also worked uh, as a consultant, and then for three years recent three years with U.S. Energy, joined uh, Uranium Power uh, just three months ago. And, uh, and that was partly with, the, with U.S. Energy selling the uranium assets. It, was, it seemed like a nice time to, uh, to make the move back to Canada. Now, we, we interviewed uh, Jim Dines uh, earlier in the mm-hmm. show, and he presented the most bullish case for uranium I think I've ever heard anyone present for any metal ever. Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what's your opinion on the uranium market? Well, what, one thing I like to tell people is uh, when I worked for uh, a, a previous employer who was a large producer who shall remain nameless, but I've already named them, uh, <laughs> every, every year the, um, the marketing department, who had some very good quality people, they tried to project what prices would be for the next five years, and in 20 years they were never right because it's, it's imp- an impossible task. Having said that, one observation I also like to make about the recent, uh, the last couple of years, is if you track the uh, the, the published marks, market uh, indices like the UX uh, uranium exchange and trade tech indices, there's not been a single week where the price has slipped. It's either gone up or it stayed the same. There's no other metal that I've ever seen that's done that for such a sustained period of time. Where will it end up? Um, I hear projections of 100, 150, 200. Uh, I guess my personal belief is that it, it might get up there, but it, it'll probably fall back. We, we've, I've always felt there would be a spike. Uh, this is a pretty broad spike, of course. Um, I think we're, we're going to end up with some fairly normal uh, supply and demand issues. Uh, the... the Price has to be sufficient to sustain the demand from, from new mines. And there's a lot of new mines coming in are not going to be producing at uh, the $15 and $20 pound uh, ranges we've seen in the past. Uh, we probably need uh, substantially in excess of $50, maybe $75, maybe more, to sustain that supply. Roughly what price do you think you'll be producing at? Um, from from Sheet Mountain, we're probably in the twenty-five to thirty-dollar pound range. Uh, 
uh, that's you know we we don't know what the uh, the milling costs are going to be. We, we've made certain assumptions, but it, it likely would be in that range. So that puts us uh, pretty pretty attractive. Uh, proposition i think and uh, why don't you tell us how many shares outstanding whether there are any warrants and options what your market cap is okay right now we've got about 82 million outstanding uh there's very few options there's only 200,000 out and uh those are 50 cents and we have about one and a half million warrants at 50 cents uh Major investors, we're about 50% uh, held by Canadian institutional uh, organizations, the rest um, privately held. So that puts our market cap today at about 53 million Canadian. And um, finally, as we close, I mean, you've told us about your future plans. Why don't you, there are so many uranium companies out there, why should I buy UPC? Well, you, you mentioned the future plans. I, I, all I uh, talked about was Sheet Mountain. We have, of course, some uh, other very good properties. Uh, one, one area in particular we uh, we'd like to focus on is uh, is northern Arizona. It's a um, a type of uranium deposit called breccia pipes. There's a, a, a number of companies that are very active down there, um, and these are uh, a unique geological setting, which typically average about 0.8%, which is four times the grade of other deposit, uh, typical uh, sandstone-hosted deposits in that general area. So there's some very good potential there. Um, we are also uh, being very aggressive in acquiring more properties. Uh, I'm spending a lot of time these days uh, in meetings uh, with uh, in negotiations, so I'm, I'm sure we're going to be able to uh, Make some announcements in the not too distant future about about uh, some additional properties. We're undervalued, quite frankly, uh, Dominic, and uh, we're we're um, going to change that. That's not a comment you can say about most uranium mining companies at the moment. <laughs> well, that's that's right. That's right. Uh, we, yeah, it, it's uh, and that's why we we obviously have to do something, and be, we're being very proactive uh, and, um, and getting out there and. Um, on the phones, beating the streets. So we're, we're, we've got some deals uh, that we're working on that hopefully, uh, you know, not, let's face it, not all of the deals will come to place. Uh, we think we've got some uh, some very good opportunities uh, to to really add to the value of the company. Are you facing a lot of competition from other miners uh, trying to get these uh, properties? Well, there is competition. I think uh, one of the things that uh, I have been able to do is, is uh, go through my, uh, my old contacts and, uh, you know, so, uh, pretty much um, coming on 30 years in uranium, I've, I've met a lot of people and uh, generally have very good relationships with them. And um, yeah, well, there's, uh, there's there's some deals to be made that uh, that perhaps I can make that other people wouldn't because I've got that foot in the door. As we finish, why don't you give out your website address and uh, your ticker symbol and tell us where you trade? The uh, ticker symbol is UPC, and we're on the uh, TSX Venture, um, and our website is uraniumpowercorp.com. Yes, all, all lowercase, no breaks, uraniumpowercorp.com. There we go. Chris Healy. And, and just one thing about our website, we're in the process of revamping it, so it's, it's, it's not perfectly up to date, but it's, uh, it'll give you, give you the basics and um, look forward to some, uh, some big improvements in, in the uh, not-too-distant future. Okay. Well, Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much for talking to me. Thank, thank you, Dominic. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com.
So with me now on the show is Alan Eggers, the Managing Director of Summit Resources, Australia's largest uranium exploration company. Alan, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Dominic. Now, why don't you tell us about your company, what you do, where you do it, and a bit about the history of the company. Thank you, Dominic. Uh, Summit's been around since 1987, and from 1990 we began pegging a series of tenements around the Mount Isa district in northwest Queensland in Australia, uh, specifically looking for uranium and copper. And tell us about you, your management, your track record, what you've done before you were involved in this. Uh, I worked for a number of international mining houses before I launched out on my own in the mid-1980s. I guess I was forced out on my own through retrenchment, which was fairly normal for the industry at that time. Uh, and we had summit floated by 1987. In those days, we were looking for gold. But uh, I saw opportunities, perhaps in, in the metals and uranium sector by 1990, and specifically started searching for those commodities and concentrated on one of the most prolific and wealthiest uh, mining belts in the world, the Mount Isa Inlay of northwest Queensland. And why don't you tell us um, how many shares there are outstanding, whether there are any warrants or options, what your market cap is, and uh, how much cash you've got in the bank? All of those good things. Summit has 197.4 million shares on issue. Uh, we're trading around about $2.60 to $2.80, which gives us a market capital of about $560 million Australian dollars, or $420 million US dollars. We have $16 million in cash in the bank. We're well funded, and we also have a call on 5 to $10 million from joint venture partners on a couple of our projects. And what percentage do, does the uh, management own? Well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> the, the, the company's largest shareholder is uh, the Firebird Capital Fund, run by James Passon out of New York. He controls about 10% of the company, and has been a backer of ours for some time. Uh, Melbourne institutions through Acorn Capital control about 7% of the company, mm -hmm. and myself and my family interests control about 7% of the company. Okay, let's talk about uh, the, your sites, your resources, what you've got, proven and unproven. Tell us about that. At the moment we're drilling eight deposits around the Mount Isa district. They're all within 70 kilometres of the city of Mount Isa, which is a, a, a very well-known and famous mining city in outback Queensland. And we're drilling up uh, these resources to resource bankable status. And at the moment we have around about £75 million resource uh, announced and we have new resource estimates and revised resource estimates coming out for four or five deposits before the end of 2007. Six, I apologise. Power, water, infrastructure, that kind of thing? Well, the plant will be located just 30 kilometres outside of the city of Mount Isa and there's existing uh, uh, power and communications and skilled workforce, heavy and light industry, supporting the mining industry, so we're very fortunate. What are your future plans? Are you looking to uh, discover a resource and get uh, taken over, or are you looking to develop your resources yourself? Uh, we intend to develop a summit as a mining house, a mid-tier mining house in Australia, uh, initially focused on mining uranium at Mount Isa. We are looking further afield, and we're looking at some greenfields projects as well, but at this point we intend to get the uranium mines underway within the next uh, three to four years, and be in production at the rate equivalent to about the world's fourth largest uranium mine. We will be producing at the rate of 3,500 tonnes, or 7.6 million pounds of yellow cake per annum. And um, it's not just uranium that uh, you're in the business of, is it? No, we have a, a, a copper search on to the south of Mount Isa as well. We've got about 4,000 square kilometres of tenements just to the south of the giant copper ore bodies at Mount Isa. 
and we're currently running geophysical surveys down there and we'll be drilling for copper in March next year. As well to the northwest, we have some iron ore and phosphate interests which we're spinning out into a, to a new company called Pacific Mines Limited. You look um, like a gentleman who's lived through good times and bad times. You lived through the, uh, you presumably witnessed, uh, you had some experience of the great kind of bull runs of the 70s followed by the bear market of the 80s and 90s. Where are we headed now? Uh, you're correct. Um, I've seen some times, I started out in the nickel boom of the uh, 70s, and I think now uh, the industry, the fundamentals of the industry has changed somewhat. We've just had 15 to 20 years of largely a mining industry that's been driven by gold and the gold price and, and nickel, apart from the obvious bulk commodities of coal and iron ore. But I think since the early 2000s, we've seen the demand for commodities and the standard of living start to rise in China and India and the resurgence of the Japanese economy and even the US economy to some extent. And this has driven a huge demand for energy and metals. And whilst sometime people thought that everything could be done by computers and we had the dot-com boom, they've now realised that in fact we do need a little bit of copper, nickel, lead and zinc and particularly uranium, a safe, clean form of energy. Do the Australian government have any plans to build uh, new, new nuclear power plants? It's interesting you ask that question. Uh, John Howard is leading the debate in Australia on uh, uranium mining and has moved on to nuclear power and issues associated with enrichment. And he would like to see those industries developed in Australia, but he's promoting debate on those issues and seeking informed reports, uh, both on enrichment facilities and nuclear power for Australia. And I think there's an acceptance in Australia that within the next 10 years, if we're not planning, we'll be seriously considering nuclear power and enrichment in Australia. OK. Um, the uranium price has enjoyed quite a big boom in the last few months, and uh, there are plenty of uh, uranium exploration companies out there. Why should I buy shares in yours? There's a large number of uranium companies out there now. Uh, the thing about Summit is that we have resources in the ground coming up to bankable feasibility stage and they will be developed. Most of the other companies, or a large number of the other companies, are really just out there searching and hoping. Now some of them will find uranium and uh, uh, will produce the goods for their investors. However, you've got to sort through those over a period of time. Summit and a number of other companies are already there and we will develop our resources. So you're kind of more a late, you're at a late stage of exploration and sort of early stages of development rather than actual that's right. With, with the Labor Party dropping their ban on new uranium mines by April 2007, uh, we would then launch into a full-scale bankable feasibility study and it will take us about three to three and a half years to bring our mine into production. Is there a real danger that they won't change that ban? Politics is a funny business and I wouldn't want to predict uh, uh, politics in Australia, but the information we have... And the, and the work we've done with the Labor Party suggests that everybody is very much supportive, except a few, but very much the majority of the Labor Party supportive of dropping the ban and getting on with it. OK. Alan, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. As we close, why don't you give out uh, your ticker symbol, where you trade, your website address, that kind of information, so people can find out a bit more about you. Uh, Summit's listed on the ASX and the NZX, the Australian and New Zealand Stock Exchanges. The code on both exchanges is SMM. Uh, we, we, we have good liquidity and uh, investors are certainly following our stock at the moment. Uh, we don't have any plans for capital raisings at, at this point. We will when we head into the bankable feasibility study. And um, our website 
is www.summitresources.com.au and there's a terrific amount of information and background information on the company on that website. Alan, it's been a pleasure. If any of you listening out there uh, see that Summit Resources are doing a presentation, I advise you to get on down because uh, Alan Eggers is a very entertaining presenter as well. So, Alan, thank you very much. Thank you, Dominic. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com. With me now on Commodity Watch Radio is Robert Wallace, the chief executive of Yellowcake, the first pure uranium investment company in the world. Formerly a journalist, he penned in September 2004 on the Mindsight website the article A New Yellowcake Age Dawns, the first article in the UK about the unfolding of the uranium story. Robert Wallace, hello. Welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. Hi there, Dominic. Now, there are uranium companies springing up everywhere, many of whom won't ever produce any uranium. One of the brokers at TD Waterhouse said to me just last week he's getting more inquiries and more people wanting to buy uranium companies than any other sector. The shares in uranium companies are doubling and tripling. The uranium commodity itself has never actually corrected. It's only ever gone up. And I actually had one of my guests on this very show say the famous last words, it's different this time. Surely this market is due a serious correction. One day there will be a correction, Dominic. Uh, like every market, there will be one. But that day is quite a long way off. Um, the fundamentals for uranium uh, have never looked better, and the market can only expect in the future, uh, for the next um, five or ten years, continuous increase in demand and, continu and, and not a reaction in terms of supply. It takes some 10 years from discovering a deposit of uranium to turning that into a production facility. So we know that well ahead with the uranium that there will be a continuous shortage uh, for some years ahead. Uh, the 2015 demand and supply figures published by the World Nuclear Association show that the gap between demand and supply uh, scheduled for 2015 is over 150 million pounds of uranium a year. So with that sort of background, I think uranium is indeed one of the best investments in the medium term. I'm persuaded by the uh, argument that um, nuclear power is the only real alternative to burning fossil fuels. There just isn't the possibility with ethanol or wind power or any of the other alternative forms of energy. But it's by no means a guarantee that everyone is going to turn to nuclear power. 
No, but let's um, let you and I uh, step back and let one of the founders of Greenpeace express this better than perhaps either of us can, James Moore. Um, as I said, one of the founders of Greenpeace, no longer a member of Greenpeace, uh, should I say. James Moore said uh, in the, an article in the Washington Post last year, nuclear power is the only non-greenhouse gas-emitting power source that can effectively replace fossil fuels and satisfy global demand. Um, basically, wind and uh, solar power, for example, are dependent on the weather. No wind equals no power generation. Um, whereas it is the base load electricity, the, the electricity that you need 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, and, and um, seven days a week, which is the one that nuclear power serves. Uh, it has to be available at all times when you work there to switch on. It cannot be um, dependent upon the vagaries of the weather. And there's only really coal and nuclear power that can produce that, plus the fossil fuels of uh, gas and oil, which are very, very precious, uh, oil especially, and aren't really suitable for us to continue as a, as a world um, to use up in power generation. Will nuclear power be used in uh, the transportation industry? Uh, that, well, when you say transportation industry, the only one, well, the one that has been used in since 1956, this was actually the very first commercial uh, nuclear uh, reactor ever produced, was in the SS Nautilus, um, which is a, an American sub, uh, submarine, and that that submarine is driven by nuclear power, by a nuclear reactor in the actual submarine. So transportation in that sense is quite possible. And indeed, many of the nuclear submarines um, produced uh, across the years are still in, in very good service. What about trains and cars and planes? Um, not, not really appropriate. Um, nuclear power is a very large-scale operation and requires um, considerable safety aspects built into it. And it's not um, it's not uh, sensible to to have trains enclosed in concrete, for example, which a nuclear power um, station really requires. So these uh, the SS Nautilus does it have a is it, uh, it can't be enclosed in concrete, that, can it? That was that was 1956, um, and the shielding around the nuclear reactor in a in a submarine is not built from concrete. No. Um, but on the other hand, it's uh, considerable. How many power stations, nuclear power stations, are there in the UK, do you know? Well, there are 20 um, power stations in the UK, of which 19 are operable, operated now. So it's 19 reactors, and they generate one-fifth of the total nuclear power, total electricity supply for, for the United Kingdom. And are any more being built? Uh, no, because current plans, um, as carried out by the present government, um, are not have not been published, and there's no decision on replacement of the um, of those um, stations, which are now they were mostly built up until 1995. Sizewell B was the last one, but the other majority of the others were all the last one built was 1983. 
So we are talking about um, reactors that are, are reaching the end of their uh, useful lives. And in fact, um, the last one, current plans, will see all but size well be uh, retired by 2023. No plans have been advanced, firm plans by the government, to replace those reactors. At the moment, we're in a very, very bad situation in the UK because 20% of our power comes from nuclear and that, uh, that is all reckoned to be phased out um, in the next years up until 2023. It sounds like someone's being a little bit short-sighted, which is never an, an accusation you could level at a government, or well, not an English one anyway. <laughs> now, if, were we to go down the French route, and uh, what is their percentage of electricity generated by nuclear power? Is it, is it 80 or 90%, am I right? Well, just a slight exaggeration there, Dominic. I think um, the official figure is uh, 79% from 57 reactors. And uh, unlike the British government, um, the French government has taken a decision to build another reactor, at least one reactor, which is under construction, and um, uh, increase the percentage of power coming from nuclear. It's, it's not often you find yourself praising the French. Um, the French have definitely got a march on us. We import power from France as a country. France produces more electricity than it needs and we are an importer of it and it's remarkable to think that um, in Britain uh, a large percentage of our power is generated completely emissions free but it's generated in France. Hmm. So if we're going to go down the French route and uh, switch to nuclear power how many nuclear power stations do we need to build if only to replace the existing ones? Um, how much is it all going to cost? Where's the expertise going to come from? How long is it going to take? I can't answer you exactly. One of the reasons is because the plan would have to say what size the reactors are. Um, the, the, the latest um, nuclear station being built in Finland uh, is a 1.6 megabyte, uh, sorry, 1.6 megawatt uh, station. Uh, most of ours are one um, megawatt or less. So um, a fewer nuclear reactors of a larger size um, would be more appropriate. The answer to your second part of your question is that it is um, carried out by that Finnish station. It's the fifth reactor in Finland. And being larger than the others, it's uh, increasing the generating capacity by about 30%. It hasn't, it's just being finished now, built by a rave of the French company. And it is being financed entirely with, without any recourse to the uh, government. Um, the next 20 years of electricity flow from that station have been securitized by a series of banks who put up the money. And the, the, uh, some of the largest European utilities, electricity utilities, have guaranteed to take supplies from that station for 20 years. On the back of that, the uh, construction money has been advanced by private, um, um, the private sector. So there is no need for Britain to fund, as a government, there's no need for Britain to fund rebuilding new stations. It can be arranged by the financial markets easily. And how much uranium will this uh, finish power station consume in a year? Um, the average one megawatt station requires 25 tonnes of uranium a year. 
compared to that, a one megawatt coal station requires 3.3 million tons of coal a year, uh, involving enormous uh, movement and transportation costs. Um, but the bigger cost to the to the world is the seven million tons of carbon monoxide um, emissions, which uh, that coal station will create whereas the nuclear station, of course, creates no carbon emissions. Inside the, one, the 7 million tons of um, pollution uh, is uh, mostly carbon monoxide, but on the other hand, there is a, um, a, a heady pollution mix, including things like arsenic. And strangely enough, coal, like everything else in the world, contains a minute percentage of uranium which is not disposed of during the, the coal-firing process. And a, 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 um, a considerable proportion of that pollution consists of uranium distributed by a coal station. <laughs> so the mother of all ironies. Now, you're talking there about clean coal or just normal coal? I'm talking about normal coal. Clean coal is a wonderful phrase created by the coal industry. Um, it isn't a practical alternative yet. There's a, a lot of uh, very heavy scientific um, um, effort being put into producing so-called clean coal. We don't have any at the moment. Indeed, um, some of the proposals from the coal industry are bizarre. Uh, for example, sequestering the uh, sulfur and carbon uh, emissions of a coal station and putting it in underground um, ex uh, um, oil wells or alternatively natural gas wells so, so to, they, they, they recognize that you cannot at this time uh, create a thing called clean coal and the proposal therefore is just to store the pollution underground 25 tons of uranium uh, how much does uranium cost per ton at the moment? Um, well, it costs now $75 uh, US dollars a pound. Um, but the cost of the uranium in the greater mix of things in terms of, terms of the cost of generating electricity is about 5 to 7% of the total cost of a nuclear reactor. By far the greatest um, share of cost of a nuclear reactor is the depreciation on the building of the station and the actual cost of uranium is only about 5 to 7 percent so if uranium were to double from here to $150 a pound uh, it still wouldn't be more than 10 to, 10 to 14 percent uh, or so of the cost of generating electricity and even then, the generating of, of electricity is not really related directly to the cost of the consumer uh, at the end of the wire, because there's transportation costs as well. So even doubling the cost of um, the uranium used to drive, to drive the station wouldn't produce more than 2 or 3% increase to cost to the consumer. And in the meantime, by the way, nuclear power is extremely competitive compared to coal. In the U.S., the figures are that it's cheaper than producing from coal. Let me ask you, with a nuclear power station, what can go wrong? Well, there's only been two instances 
serious. There have been some, some, some minor instances around the world, but there have only been two instances of, of things going seriously wrong. One of the greatest things about uh, nuclear power that isn't understood by the public, it has the best safety record of any form of power generation. Um, the, the only two incidents, of course, were Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania in 1978, where um, there was a nuclear meltdown, but the reactor design, even in those days, proved wonderful in that no, although there was a, a nuclear meltdown, no radiation escaped the three concrete skins of that building, and it was all contained in the first um, chamber, and none of it escaped into the outside air. Uh, I've read the transcripts of the, of the court case where some 1,500 people claimed they got leukemia and ingrowing toenails and every other malady you can imagine from uh, um, that incident. And I've read the scathing remarks of the judge who said that all the people who sued uh, in that respect and all their lawyers um, were to be heavily deprecated for bringing um uh, malicious uh, but uh, frivolous claims because there was no proof that any radiation escaped that building. Chernobyl, of course, um, uh, in the Ukraine was a different matter where the, the station blew up and caused um, a considerable number of deaths. On the site, there were 31 people killed in, at Chernobyl. But Chernobyl was um, totally out of the ordinary. They were conducting an experiment at the time which involved uh, switching off all the, all the safety systems and withdrawing fuel rods from the reactor as part of an unauthorized um, experiment. And it was that that led to the, the, um, that particular tragedy. Um, those 31 people still remain the only people who've ever been killed on a nuclear station. Uh, anywhere in the world at, at any one time. And since Chernobyl, the world has had 13,000 reactor years um, uh, of completely um, death-free uh, operation. And it's the only fuel source that has that sort of record. The numbers of people killed through coal stations um, is considerably larger than 10,000. Even hydroelectric power has caused 4,000 deaths. Uh, that was through the bursting of two dams in um, in India during the period. Um, and oil and even oil and gas have had up to 1,500 deaths across that period. There have been none at any nuclear stations. It has the best safety record of in the last 20 years of uh, any power power generation source the number of, of reactors that are being uh, under actually under construction is 28 right now. But those reactors are a completely different generation to the ones uh, operating um, before 1990 when all the world's reactors were built. So the prospects are only better in terms of safety record going forwards. I don't know if you've read William Engdahl's book, uh, Century of War, which basically details all the uh, oil wars through the uh, 20th and the beginning of the 21st century. But in it, he suggests that the negative consequences of the Three Mile Island incident were deliberately exaggerated by a pro-oil American government. That sounds exceptionally... um, um 
correct at that time. And that those, those sorts of rumours and those sorts of um, uh, malicious um, um, emissions, if you like, from that particular incident have cost the United States dearly because it's still only got the 103 reactors uh, which it had at the time of Three Mile Island. They haven't built one since. Had they done so, had they continued with the building scheme, um, which was which was planned, um, they probably had about 80 percent, like France, 80 percent of their um, nuclear of their electricity production caused through nuclear. And at that point, the USA would be a virtually emission-free country, as it, as it is. Um, only about 20 percent of the um, electricity production in America is nuclear and their, their particular coal uh, burning activities um, are a major cause of worldwide pollution. And they wouldn't be in quite such a pickle in the Middle East either. Um, when you say oil wars, we are coming up towards a period when uranium will become, I think, a strategic um, commodity. Russia has already announced, Russia, you may know, has been the provider of, a, of uh, some 30 to 40 percent of the world's uranium supplies uh, for many years uh, by, by downblending nuclear weapons. Their stockpile after nuclear weapons were outlawed, really, under the SALT Treaty in 1982. Um, and ever since then, um, Russia has been downblending the plutonium from its weapons to produce uh, um, peaceful nuclear material for um, uranium, in, in other words, for the um, nuclear power industry. Um, Russia has now announced that it will not downblend any further weapons from 2012 for use by Western nations. It will, in fact, keep all the uranium to itself, and uh, that it will build 20, it's spending $25 billion on new nuclear stations within Russia so that it can export all its gas. At that point, uh, the world, the Western world, the European world, will be very, very, very heavily dependent on on gas from Russia uh, to keep itself um, supplied with electricity. That's a very dangerous position to be in. Um, eventually, the people who control uranium um, will control uh, the world's nuclear industry. And it's very refreshing to note that the biggest suppliers of uranium are Australia, Africa, and uh, um, North America, China, um, Canada particularly, and sources within those, from those safe, as it were, areas uh, amount, will amount by 2015 to about 64% of, of um, all uranium produced. Uranium mining and the building of nuclear plants is going to boost demand for equipment and services. So what are the related companies that we should be looking at? In the UK especially, with the decommissioning programme of uh, some 20 reactors closing, um, represents a considerable sum uh, involved. And there are a number of world, world construction companies like uh, Bechtel, etc., um, who are jostling for nuclear decommissioning work. I can't give you any names and uh, numbers personally, but um, uh, certainly the decommissioning expenditure in the next 20 years in the UK and in, and in countries around the world where 
stations are being renewed um, will be a, a very um, useful source of um, revenue and, and profit, which will uh, form a good uh, investment case. In, in terms of supply, um, I, think, I think we need to focus on uranium itself. I still think that's the most um, certain and promising sector in which to invest in the years ahead. But um, if only a dozen or so of the uranium explorers will make it to production, how do you pick the winners? There are <coughs> some 400 so-called uranium-producing um, or, or exploration companies around the world. And as you said earlier, a lot of them have got very little hope of producing ever any uranium. Um, in Canada, they have this phrase, moose pasture companies, and by moose pasture, they just mean um, some anybody who stakes up uh, an area of tundra up in North Canada and says we're looking for uranium. That can't be classed along with those people who um, have the right chance of producing uranium. Um, the reward for an exploration company finding commercial deposits of uranium are colossal. For example, if a... If a um, deposit is found with um, reserves, proven reserves, of 20 million pounds of uranium, which is not um, an enormous number in the scheme of things. Many of the top exploration companies have that capacity. Um, at even $50 a pound, let's say it falls to that sort of level long term, that's $1 billion of resources. Uh, and, the, and the rewards are colossal. Many of the uh, current exploration companies around the world have market caps under $100 million. And um, the, the, uh, the prospects for such a company are electric. How do you di differentiate the wheat from the chaff, as it were? Um, one of the best measures of all is that there was an enormous amount of research carried out in the 70s uh, and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s, and much of this data remains intact. And finding a deposit where there were historically uh, proven reserves, or not, not, not reserves, but resources, where, the, where drilling was actually done and where there was an estimate of you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 million pounds of uranium in the, in the ground, um, where they are being regenerated, where people are now going back to those historically proven um, resources, uh, is a very good first step. Um, for example, uh, Euromin, which is uh, one of the companies quoted in London, uh, it has a number of deposits, but in Central African Republic, there's the Bakuma deposit, which was completely explored back in the 70s and 80s, uh, and reckoned to contain some 20 to 23 million pounds of uranium. Um, and then, of course, all the exploration was halted after Chernobyl because there was no demand for uranium, uh, further uranium supplies at that time. All that, all those records remain. And if you're, you know, it is only for uranium to re-drill and reprove those resources in, in modern um, times. Uh, and, and, and there's a deposit. 
So that's a, that's a pretty safe company to invest in, a company that has that sort of capacity. We, when we spoke last night, you mentioned uh, the fu- future of nuclear power and what, what the physicists are working on, what's going to be happening in, in 50 years' time. Tell us briefly about that. Nuclear power today is carried out by nuclear fission, um, which, is a, which is a way of generating the power from um, neutral uranium. Um, five or six countries, including China, Russia, France, Britain, America, uh, including those companies and I think another couple of countries, are working on a new replacement technology called nuclear fusion. Uh, basically, the, um, the power for nuclear fusion um, is, is, uh, can be generated from seawater. After 2050, and that's very, the very earliest date that's been uh, reckoned to reach nuclear fission being tested properly and um, all, all the scientific um, investigations completed, um, we, we could move to that form of propulsion and uranium um, whilst it will continue to supply the existing stations might not be needed in the far distant future. At the moment, there's at least 80 years of uranium in the world um, to to take us forward of, of known and, and recognised resources. So, nuclear's a long-term, um, a vastly valuable aider to the world of producing carbon-free electricity. Robert, it's been a real pleasure. It's been fascinating talking to you. Why don't you give out the uh, website address of your company and your ticker symbol uh, as we close? We are Yellow Cake PLC. The website is www.yellowcakeplc.com and um, all the details of the company are on there. Robert Wallace, thank you very much. A pleasure, Dominic. Goodbye for now. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com. Andrew Ferguson is an investment manager for New City Investment Managers. His trust, City Natural Resources, was the best performing investment trust in the UK in 2006. And his fund, Geiger Counter, up 94% from its launch date last July, specialises in uranium companies. And it's one of the only uranium funds in the world. Andrew, welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. Good morning. Now, why don't you tell us about uh, Geiger Counter? How many uh, how many companies do you own? Uh, well, it's a changing feast. I suppose we're probably at around the sort of forty-five to fifty individual investments in the trust at the moment. And do you trade in and out, or do you tend to buy and hold? Um, a bit of both, really. We, we've got one or two core positions which tend to be buy and hold, where. Uh, the story is good, the story is developing, the companies are developing, or, you know, in the larger shareholdings, they're producing cash, so you, you tend to buy and hold. Um, some of the smaller companies, you are nimble, you're in and out, particularly at the moment with the way the market's behaving, you're seeing valuations being pushed up to potentially beyond what we might deem as acceptable, and um, half the trick of, of the job that we do here is um, not falling in love with stocks and taking a profit. Do you own Cameco? No. 
Had you? Did you ever buy it? Yeah, we did. We sold Cameco um, on the Monday after they put their announcement out. Uh, within the first five minutes of that, uh, the market opening post announcement on on the flooding of Cigar Lake, the market was asleep. Nobody actually really understood for 48 hours the severity of the problems at Cameco. Um, and am I right in saying last week they said seven years now? Yeah, and the market still doesn't get it. And I think that the Cameco are playing a big company game with the market. They're not telling people too much about really what's going on, about the remediation work. We were meant to know in January. We were meant to know in February. Apparently we might find out in March. I don't know. Um, there's going to be a point where Cameco will disappoint and the market will overreact and they will sell it down and that I think will probably be the point that you want to get involved. It is still the largest uranium producer in the world and they do probably have the largest asset base of uranium in the world and so there is a point that you will have to own this company. If their Cigar Lake property is so badly damaged that they're, are they going to be looking to start acquiring other assets, maybe some explorers with good properties? Well, um, they actually, Cameco, have a stable and a portfolio of undeveloped but uh, known uranium assets, predominantly in the Athabasca Basin, but on a global basis. And I would guess their board are probably fast-tracking various other projects within the stable at the moment. Uh, and then I would say as a, as a different string to their bow, they'll probably be, uh, they'll be looking around at, at some of the, the smaller companies, some of the developing um, explorers who've probably got good assets, um, but uh, probably don't have the skills to take them forward. And yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they do become acquisitive. And that Cameco, that the market hasn't reacted to the uh, to the Cameco situation, does that suggest there's a lot of um, speculative, shall we say, incomprehending money in the uranium market at the moment? Um, <coughs> they did react. So the stock was at about forty-four dollars the day that they made their announcement um, last year. Um, it took a while, but the stock drifted all the way down to $36. And on the back of the uranium metal, the physical metals rise in price, the stock's gone back up to around sort of 43 where we are today, I think. Um, and it's purely, I think, because you've got a higher metal price, which will potentially offset some of the problems of Cigar Lake, bearing in mind they are the largest producer in the world. But also, there are no other real names for the the professional investor to go and buy uh, of any size. I mean, you know, we've just heard an announcement this week of SXR and, mm -hmm. and Eurasia getting together and, and, and merging. That forms a $5 billion company. Do you own uh, both of those? I do, yeah. Um, which I think is great because you need to make bigger bigger companies for the, the, the world at large, whether it be the sort of hedge funds to trade or, or the pension funds to get involved. They, they they call a micro cap anything with a, a billion billion dollar market cap or less so and they won't invest in them so to to, to push them up the, the the scale is is important and also I think you know there are certain things like production and um, cash flow are hugely important to these people which is quite right too so the reason Cameco's stayed relatively healthy at the moment is because there are no other companies for people mm -hmm. to buy in my opinion. SXR uh, seem to be acting very dynamically. They, they seem to be acquiring or looking or suggesting that they're going to in, um, acquire properties all over the shop. Well, somebody has to. There's, there's first mover advantage to be played for here. Um, SXR have, have come from nowhere. They know that they've got to diversify their asset base away from South Africa, which they're doing because they've got Honeywell in Australia. 
they've got their strategy with the U.S. Um, people who suggested that this merger is not right because of the Kazakh risk, I was just I put South Africa in the same basket as Kazakhstan as far as risk. I put it right up there. So mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, I don't think uh, I'm not unduly worried by it. I think in in actual fact, it's a, it's a very clever thing. Um, do you own a lot of AIM-listed uranium stocks, or do you tend to pre- do you prefer the American and the Canadian? Canadian, Canadian, Canadian. Canadian. Um, we've got one or two. We've got a, a tiny little thing called Vein Minerals, um, which... They're interviewed uh, on this show, actually. Are they? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, Vein, we've supported by way of the convertible and, and straight equity. Um they're misunderstood. They're perceived to be a silver company, which they are. They produce silver and, and uh, gold from their mine in Mexico, which is great. They have cash flow. They don't necessarily need to keep coming to the market for money like other junior companies. Um, but they've got these breccia pipes in, in uh, America, in the sort of Midwest, I suppose it is, um, which have got previous history. They've been mined in the past. The geology is relatively simple. Uh, and I actually think they've probably got quite a few million pounds in the ground. So you know, we've got involved with, with them. The other little one that we own is called Uranium um, what's it called? Uranium Resources on AIM. Um, they have a 50% joint venture with a, a group in uh, Australia called Western Metals. It's the wrong price in the UK. In, in Australia, um, the Australian 50% would equate to about an 8p share price. But, of course, the, the, the AIM market's not sophisticated enough and the, the people involved in it generally don't sort of understand uh, the, the nuances of, of, of joint ventures, I don't think. Um, but apart from those two, no, we tend to steer very well clear of it, um, liquidity being my big bugbear. And spreads? Spreads wider than a mile. You can drive buses through most of them. Um, it's unfortunate because the UK could have started on the march, but I'm afraid that the Canadians and the Australians, uh, with their order-driven systems, are, uh, are very much in, in control of this market. I find it a great... I mean, I, I invest quite a bit of my own money and, and uh, it's just very hard to earn anything on AIM because of those spreads and you end up putting your money into uh, Canadian dollars and, and uh, Aussie dollars and then you face the, um, the currency risk as well as everything which, else. Which has not been insignificant this year alone. I well, mean. the Canadian's well down, isn't it? Yeah, it's gone from just nearly... Well, it's gone from 2 to wherever we are today, 2.3 or something, mm-hmm. which... Um, is not useful when you're running a, a big fund, let alone when you're talking about uh, your own money. Mm-hmm. What? Uh, how much money do you manage? Uh, as a group, um, Richard and I look after about two hundred, I suppose, thirty million pounds sterling. That's uh, that's the entire New City Investment Management yep. Fund. What about Geiger Counter? Geiger's is today roughly about fifty-five, sixty million pounds sterling. Okay. So and if we want to buy Geiger Counter, where do we? What's your ticker symbol? Where do we look? Geiger Counter is, is primarily listed on the Channel Island Stock Exchange, which is a regulated exchange, and it has a secondary quote here in London. Uh, ticker code is GCL, um, and trades on the, the international board of the London Stock Exchange. Uh, any stockbroker can buy it. I uh, see. And um, what's? Uh, do you have a website? Yeah, we do. It's all on the New City Investment Manager's website, which is ncim.co.uk. Um, and we keep that up to date. We put fact sheets out uh, for all the trusts that we manage, just a bit of market commentary and, and the top holdings of each trust. And that your business is basically uh, investing in natural resources. Yep. I presume you are a uh, commodities bull. Um, certain sectors of the space, yeah, definitely. Um, obviously very keen on uranium, uh, very, very keen on the gold price. 
um, and gold equities per se. Not so keen on certain base metals. I think uh, I'm, you know we we like nickel. We really do like nickel. Just on a fundamental argument, we like uh, the zinc price uh, and and zinc stocks on the fundamentals. Little more sceptical about copper, for example. Um, but uh, it's all really. Does the world keep growing? If the world keeps growing, the metals keep going up. Or not necessarily up, but they, they keep giving you uh, sensible returns back. And does your City Natural Resource Fund have uh, exposure to soft commodity prices? We do. We've got a few plantation companies, things like uh, Anglo Eastern Plantations, MP Evans, um, REA, which are all palm oil producers in the Far East. Um, MP, MP Evans is a bit more of a sort of you know, soft uh, commodity. A conglomerate, but uh, no, the palm oil price is sort of uh, sitting at near all-time highs, around six hundred, uh, six hundred dollars. And um, yeah, I think we're, we're pretty optimistic. I think the other area we've uh, we would like to get involved with, but maybe not in these vehicles, is water, because I think actually yeah. water is probably the most precious natural commodity sitting in the world. Well, we're going to do a programme on water, so you must come back. And we'll yeah. do a programme on zinc as well, so oh, come I, and talk to us about that yeah, too. Yeah, well, any time. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, how do you invest in water? It's, it's, I mean, apart from water services, it, it's difficult. But let's not talk about that now. We'll talk about that another time. Um, let's, let's go back to uranium. What do you think the UK needs to do? If you were um, a consultant to one of the energy ministers, what would you be saying to them now? I think they've got to pull their finger out, to be quite honest with you. I mean, at the moment, you know, uranium, everybody's talking about the metal. They're talking about how high is the metal going to go from $75 a pound. They're talking about demand, but you've got to look underneath what's fueling demand. Demand's being fueled by a new build reactor plan going on on a global basis. And you've got the Chinese, you've got the South Africans, you've got the Finns, you've got the Indians, you've got the Russians, you know. And that's a tiny little proportion of, of, of some of the superpowers in the world who are actually all building new reactors. Um, the UK will dither because politicians tend to do that. Nobody will want to upset the voters, and um, will be left will be left you know behind. I think they really need to pull their finger out and get on with it because the problem is the nuclear industry has been so unloved for so many years. There is a, a dearth of people. There's a skill shortage of people who understand and can make reactors. Uh, the UK is actually blessed to some extent. But uh, there's only four or five companies who can license the technology to, to build new reactors. And what will happen, of course, is that uh, everybody else will get in the queue first and we'll, we'll be at the back of the queue. And so rather than going through you know, the, the, the due public process, I mean, the Chinese, you've got to quietly admire them. They're just getting on with it. They know they need the energy. The South Africans are getting on with it. Whereas over here in this country, it will take politicians, many public debates and, and, and hearings, etc., for them to make their mind up. And it will be 10 years down the line and it will be too late. And we'll be paying top dollar. We'll be paying top dollar. We'll be 90% reliant on Norwegian and Russian gas imports for our energy needs, which is a first world nation, which is apparently what we are, is uh, pretty worrying, really. <laughs> and uh, I'm of the belief that we might not be at, at or near peak oil, but we're at or near peak cheap oil. I, think, I think so. I mean, you know, I, I, I saw a lovely statistic in the weekend press um, that the, the Chinese are still only consuming half the number of barrels per capita that, that um, America consumes, for example. Um, 
you know, when those when that statistic, just for it to move a fraction, in sort of kilt with what we're used to in the West, uh, is going to have serious serious impact on the energy space. And so, yes, I think I think the oil market's going to to sort of bounce very happily between, you know, wherever we are today at fifty seven dollars a barrel up. To, you know, probably maybe down as low as forty five, but I think it's got the potential to go higher as well. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but my point is we've got to move into nuclear power because of the fact that oil's not going to be cheap for much longer. No, I mean, you know, I mean the French have been laughing the whole way through the oil boom because the 80% of their base case or base uh, load energy is, is from nuclear. Um, and they took that step back in the 1970s when the last oil chaos sort of hit, and uh, they've got it right. So um, I don't really understand. I mean, the UK, I think we currently generate about 15% of our... Uh, energy needs from nuclear, it should actually be sort of closer to 25-30%. Um, and then the government can bring it sort of fan, fandangle that wind turbines and everything else in, which is nothing more, in my humble opinion, than sort of, you know, glitz and playing up to the press or, or you know, the, the MPs and MEPs in, in, um, in Belgium, because you need the wind to blow. For starters, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't happen every day, but uh, they cost so much to build. There's a million pounds each to build, or something. Well, ridiculous. What's the energy? I think some some brain told me that the uh, energy used in making one of these wind turbines that we see is actually takes the wind turbine twelve years to generate. So it would pay for itself in twelve years, but you know, it would probably be packed up by then as well. So you'd have to replace it. So I'm, I'm, I'm sceptical about it. and, and We're not building any nuclear reactors in the UK at the moment, am I right? No, I did read something slightly encouraging that they, were, they, were, they had put a tender out um, with a view to... Because the problem is with uh, the nuclear fleet in the UK is it's actually getting to its, its best before date. Um, they'll probably stretch it out ten years longer than, than they've said, which is great, but they really now need to start thinking very, very harsh. Oh, sorry, hard about uh, how they're going to do it. And can you see a time when our cars and trains are powered somehow by nuclear power, be it by electricity produced by nuclear energy or by some sort of hydrogen? Do you see that time around I the could, I could see hydrogen more than, than, than everybody having a, a nuclear reactor in their car. I think that would be a stone too far. But well, no, but I mean, you might get, you might plug your car into your electricity yeah. thing at home and your home yeah. electricity might be generated. Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, I, 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 you know, it's, it's the only sensible alternative. Uh, it's a good, for, it's a good bedfellow for, for the hydrocarbons that we already use. Um, you know, it, it's, the, the big thing that the politicians will tell you about that it is greener, and it is greener than, than burning fossil fuels, for example. But in actual fact, I mean, if I was a politician or the prime minister, I'd be more worried about my surety of supply rather than relying on Mr. Putin, who, you know, whatever you think, we all know can be unreliable as far as his gas supplies are turned off at a moment's notice. It's not where we should be as a country. I don't think you would, uh, you know, definitely want to uh, ensure that the lights stay on and you can keep going, which is uh, what nuclear, I think, provides because it sits on your own, on your own shores, in your own country. How are we going to cure this? And um, this isn't your area of expertise, I know, but how are we going to cure this ailment of short-term voter-pleasing policies that we have in government? I think you have to go back. I mean, it was probably before. It was before my time, but you know, you've got to almost go back and, and do what the likes of Mrs. Thatcher did, which is stick her fingers up at everybody and just get on with it. Um, respect comes, I suppose, to those who, who earn it. I don't know. I just, I mean, you know, and you know, the real people to blame are us. Uh, you know, you're listeners to your program because nobody actually gets off their asses and votes for change. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the truth of it. Politicians are, are a waste of space. We all know that because they, they'll never do anything to upset um, themselves or their own little cocoon. But it's actually us who deserve the blame. But uh, I mean, who do we vote for then? Well, I'm not suggesting, I'm not telling you who to vote for. No, but I'm I mean, suge- David Cameron's kind of in many ways another Tony Blair. Well, he probably is, yeah, that's the problem. Um, but I'm suggesting that if we don't vote, we're not expressing our opinions. Um, and. You know, like Mr. Livingston running roughshod and riot with his blooming, you know, little thiefdom building London with, you know, congestion charging and tax. Um, you know, who's to blame? Well, we are as the voters for not moving him on. So, uh, I Do don't know who you vote for. I'm not suggesting, I've got no idea, but I'm suggesting that there's, there's a job out there for somebody who's actually going to be a little bit more frank and honest and open. I couldn't agree more. And um, do you think uh, the effects of living of Livingston's tax might eventually hurt um, the city's place as the one of the world's financial centres? Do you think? Well, I don't think so for the time being. No, I think the city is actually far more powerful than Mr. Livingston will ever give it credit for. Um, I think Mr. Who was the who was the Northern Ireland Minister of the weekend? Mr. Haynes came out and said that city bonuses should all be given to the poor. You know, and they're all cl- they're all clutching at straws, really. I think um, the city em- employs and creates a lot of wealth for a lot of more people than just those directly involved in it. So, um, no, I think uh, I think London's here to stay. It would just be nice if the lights were still on. <laughs> That's a great line to finish on, Andrew Ferguson. Thank you very much. And um, why don't you give out uh, your website address one more time so that people can find out a bit more about you. Yeah, the website's uh, www.ncim.co.uk. Andrew, thanks very much. Thank you. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com. Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub, is with me now. And, uh, Michael, why don't you give us the level-headed trader's perspective on the uranium market at the moment? (laughs) Well, I hope I can give you some kind of a perspective anyway. Uh, Whether it's level-headed or not, well, time will show. Um, Well, I, I think there are some similarities between what we're seeing in the uranium market now and what we saw in the gold market last year. Um, and, of course, remember in the gold market, we saw a bit of a buying frenzy as we went into the top in, uh, I think it was May. And it seems to be, we're seeing some of the same signs of that now in, in the uranium market. Lots of people who haven't been in the market are jumping in now. And they're jumping in and buying almost indiscriminately. They're buying stocks. So, I mean, I'm tending to look at this as, and who knows how far these bubbles go, but I'm tending to look at this as a selling opportunity. Uh, where I can take some money off the table in uranium stocks and put it into gold and energy stocks. Um, so where I have uranium stocks, I'm, I'm really re- selling right now, intending to redeploy elsewhere. You're, you're convinced of the long-term case uh, for uranium, but you think we might be uh, on our way to a short-term top? Yeah, that, that, I would agree with that. Um, like last year, we saw a, a top in May in gold. And then we saw a pullback, and it lasted some months. And now we're headed back to, I reckon we're going to go back and retest that high and go higher. Um, and if we saw a pullback in uranium, it might last a few weeks at least, maybe a few months. Uh, I would be inclined to buy that. Now, I understand you are buying or you are considering buying 
puts on the U.S. indices. Is that wise, given the screaming runaway bull market that's been going on for the last six months? Well, I, th I think it stopped screaming with uh, the same intensity that it was before. But let's step back for a second and, 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 and see what uh, I'm concerned about here. Um, we've had a long bull market. It really goes back to 2002 or 2003, depending on which index you're looking at. And that's a long time. 2002 to today is uh, what well, was October 2002. So really talking about almost four and a half years. Um, and if you look at 2003, the low would have been in March 2003, so we're nearly into uh, four years. There's a four-year cycle that tends to be one of the most uh, reliable cycles um, that, that you, you can find. And, um, I mean, well, some people will tell you that it bottomed last year in July. I don't believe that. I believe that cycle has yet to bottom, and that we will see an important fall before that cycle's over. Uh, there are a number of very interesting um, predictions and forecasts from various analysts. And I can mention here Martin Armstrong, and there's a thread on this. There's a thread about Martin Armstrong, and I think you've started yourself. Um, that's right, isn't it? That is correct. Uh, people can read a thread on GEI about Martin Armstrong. He's got the 8.64-year cycle, I think he talks about. Um, and uh, I recommend everyone take a look at the uh, Martin Armstrong thread on uh, Global Edge Investors and uh, look at some of the charts and uh, click on some of the links. It reads like a thriller, his story. Um, he's, he's currently in prison. He's been held in prison without a hearing for longer than anyone else has ever been held before. One of the key witnesses was assassinated under mysterious circumstances. Apparently the uh, CIA were trying to buy his computer, his predictive computer models, and he wouldn't uh, give them to them. But uh, anyway, he has a big turn date. He has an 8.64-year cycle, I believe, and his big turn date is late Feb, maybe Feb the 25th, 26th, 27th, somewhere around there. Um, there's another chap called um, Peter Eliadis, who's an expert on cycles. He's got some interesting ideas. I won't go into a long uh, exposition of that, but uh, it basically he thinks we're coming into an important top here sometime between now and May. And after that top is in place, it will be some years, perhaps, before we see higher highs. How successful a trader has uh, Peter Eliades been? I mean, are his calls reliable? Well, I don't know what his trading success is, but I've been reading his or hearing of his forecast for many years, and he has gotten it right. He's a real student of the market. Um, he looks back, um, you know, decades and even hundreds of years in some cases. And uh, well, let me kind of summarize what he's saying is he talks about from low to low to high. So, I mean, another way of putting that is he's talking about cycle inversions, where if you measure the time frame from two important lows uh, to today, um, there's almost an equal time frame from the low to the next low. That time frame is equivalent uh, to the time frame from the second low to more or less where we are today. And he says a whole range of cycles are showing that pattern. Uh, I think the longest cycle he talks about which shows that pattern is of 78 years or something. But the point of that is that uh, when all these cycles are inverting at the same time, it typically means there's a very important turn coming in the market. Um, 
and you know we we should have probably had our our uh, our cyclical low in the four year cycle around about now instead we're getting a high so that suggests we might have one of those inversions going on if that happens um, it could mean we have a very sharp drop to look forward to now I'll mention one other guy who's also a, a student of cycles and long cycles and this chap goes back hundreds of years and even thousands of years I think I've heard him talk about but he's a very interesting guy. He's come up with some very interesting forecasts, some of them being accurate, some of them not accurate. But he's a guy called P.Q. Wall. And uh, P.Q. Wall talks about um, a sort of repeat of the 1929 uh, drop. And he says that you know there, there is one date uh, or time that's emblazed in everyone's memory, and that's 1929. And he says 12 months from now, there will be two. So he thinks we're going to see a very sharp <laughs> sell-off. It's funny, isn't it? But uh, you know, I uh, I don't know whether to believe this stuff. But um, the thing is, Michael, is that bad news is easier to sell than good news. If if you have a newsletter and you're going, everything's going to be great, it won't sell as well as the newsletters that go. Um, all doom and doom, doom and gloom. For example, Arch Crawford, who uses those, uh, who uses astrological, uh, he uses the planets in order to make predictions and forecasts about the market. I mean, his calls, he's made some amazing calls over the years, but last year, 2006, he was horrendously off. Yes, it's, it's true, and we have a thread which, you know, people want to see that on G&I. It's all documented, his forecasts and... Uh, comments about them and then eventually how wrong he got it yes it is true and but his newsletter sells well yes well I, don't, I wonder if it's selling as well now as it was a year ago I doubt it but but let me come on to how I'm actually um, using this uh, information or these forecasts okay and I think that's important for people to take on board um, well I'm uh, my portfolio is is about uh, 80 or 90 percent long um, resource stocks, and that's mainly gold shares, and I'm shifting slowly, slowly, I'm shifting some of my portfolio into energy shares, and I guess it's something like um, 80% mining now, and about 10% oil, and 10% something else. Uh, now, amongst that something else, uh, I own some puts, and it's, you know, it's dwindled down because they've lost value to a, a, a few percent now, but Basically, what I do is I've been investing, and this goes back even to Arch Crawford's disaster of last year. I've been investing a portion of my profits in put options. And I don't buy puts every day or every week or every month. I actually haven't bought them for a little while. But um, what I tend to do is I take some portion of my profits and I buy put options. Now, this has a number of advantages over shorting the market or selling my portfolio. And that's demonstrated by the trading uh, results that I've shown over the last year. And, uh, I mean, over the last year, I guess I'm up uh, in one portfolio uh, well over 30% and overall something like that. Um, and that's despite, um, that's despite um, having lost a lot of money in puts. So what I'm doing is I'm taking some of the profits and I'm buying puts. Now, why am I buying puts? Um, well, you know, I lose on the puts and the market keeps going ahead and drives my resource shares higher. Um, then I, you know, it's like losing on insurance policy. Um, you lose the premium, uh, but you're still alive. 
And in my case, I lose the options premium, but my portfolio is still alive and still benefiting from the run-up in the market. So um, that strategy has worked well. Um, I'm now thinking about um, buying quite a large number of puts sometime in the next um, few weeks, possibly during February, possibly as soon as one or two weeks from now. I'll start buying a large number of puts again. And let's look at how the dynamics of this work. Um, for about 2 to 2.5%, I can buy an at-the-money put on the S&P 500. So for $25,000, approximately $25,000, I can protect a million dollars of investment. So for example, if I have a $5 million portfolio to protect, uh, for $125,000, I protect that portfolio. Uh, now, my particular portfolio tends to be more volatile than most, so uh, I might want to uh, protect a notionally larger portfolio. Um, and so, um, you know, that's a, small, that's a small amount of money relative to the portfolio. So if uh, I spend $125,000 on puts and then the market doesn't drop, the market instead goes up another 10%, well, my $5 million is now going up to $5.5 million, and I'm ahead of the game. Even accounting for the loss of 125, the $500,000 profit leaves me with a nice profit of close to $400,000. So that's a nice return. Now, if the market drops and my portfolio falls from, let's say, $5 million down to $4 million, then I might make a million dollars um, from my puts. And so that's what I'm trying to achieve. I'm trying to achieve a situation where if the market goes up, I make money. And if the market drops sh sharply, uh, my losses are covered by the puts. Throughout the 70s, we saw basically the stock market and the commodities market go in a different direction. But over the last two or three years, Basically, everything's gone up, um, and in the May correction, we saw everything go down. If we get, let's use the, uh, the word, a correction, if we get some sort of stock market correction, which way do you think gold is going to go, and which way do you think the gold and resource stocks are going to go? Well, that's a good, that's an excellent question, and I think we really need to think about three different um, three different things to watch. One is stocks, another is gold, and another one is gold stocks. And I tend to regard gold stocks as being somewhere in the middle between being gold and being stocks. So, um, you know, if gold and stocks go in the same direction, well, gold stocks are likely to follow both of them up or both of them down. But in a situation where gold goes one way and stocks go another way, um, gold stocks will be somewhere in the middle. Um, and I think we also have to consider what might drive the move downwards in the market. If it's fears of higher inflation uh, or evidence of higher inflation, then what we might see is we might see stocks falling as people worry about rising interest rates. And we might see gold going up because people feel that gold is the place to be if we're going to have higher inflation. And in that circumstance, gold shares might tread water or even rise when the rest of the stock market is going down. Um, now, having said that, um, we do have to keep in mind that since gold shares are, are stocks, if people start getting hit with margin calls, at some point people might be driven to sell their gold shares 
simply to shore up their portfolio values. So in that situation, if we saw a 10 or 20% drop in the stock market, we might see gold shares sell off a bit too, but hopefully quite a bit less. So, you know, uh, it's, it'll be interesting to see which type of drop we have this time. Is it driven by external events which uh, leave gold flat or even going down, or is it driven by some kind of uh, story or fear that causes gold to go up while, while, uh, while shares drop? But anyway, I'm hedging my gold shares by buying puts on the general market, and I'm kind of hoping that uh, we will have one of those moves where I win on both sides of the hedge. Mike, uh, it's been great talking to you, and uh, I wish you good fortune with your puts. Do you want to give out the website of Global Edge? Yes, uh, it's easy to find, easy to remember. It's globaledgeinvestors.com. Um, if you want a shortcut uh, into the site, you don't want to type all, out, out all those words, simply type geibb.com. Or there's a link from Mindsight. If you click on the Mindsight bulletin board button, that'll take you through to Global Edge. Everyone's welcome, and uh, please come and have a look and join and even start a thread. Okay. Michael, uh, hopefully I'll see you um, in a couple of weeks at uh, the PDAC in Toronto. But in the meantime, it's been great talking to you. Same for me. Speak to you soon. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.